Welcome back, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz, with me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. It's episode 8 of 11, A Game of Thrones. A couple of quick announcements. Episode 9 will be next week. It'll be 8 chapters rather than 7. A little extra, so we can fit everything just right. The book doesn't exactly divide itself by 7. And then we will be off for, originally it was planned to be two weeks, but it will be three weeks. We have, we'll let everybody do some catching up while we're at some conventions, but we will have content released every Sunday, even while we're gone. We have all these panels from Con of Thrones and some live streams that haven't gone up on the, on the main feed, as well as a couple other things. So there will still be content every week, every Sunday or thereabouts. Uh, even when we aren't putting up Valerie Ritas. And I know some of you guys need time to catch up, so that'll be perfect. And then after that, we'll be running with Clash of Kings in September. So thanks to all of y'all who have been participating. Big thanks to all our patrons. You know who you are. We love y'all. You make us make all this possible and make us feel so appreciated. So this week, we have Sansa 3, the one where Sansa yells, the Joff is not like Robert, a.k.a. the gang gets sent back to Winterfell. Eddard 12, the one where Cersei says, you win or you die, a.k.a. the gang figures out about all the incest. <laughs> Daenerys 5, the one where Danny eats a horse heart, a.k.a. the gang crowns Viserys in gold. Eddard 13, the one where Robert dies, a.k.a. the gang tweaks the royal will. John 6, the gang swears their Night's Watch vows, a.k.a. the one where Ghost finds Benjen's dead men. Eddard 14, the gang usurps Robert's will, a.k.a. the one where Littlefinger did warn Ned not to trust him, you know. You know. And Arya 4, the one where the first sword of Bravos doesn't run, a.k.a. the gang escapes the Red Keep. Now, I struggled to decide which of these was the most important of the batch. It's always kind of, it's always something I like to do for people who are only reading along with certain key chapters, people who don't have time to read everything. And I know, by the way, that a lot of you all aren't reading right along with us. Some of you are going ahead. Some of you are moving all over the place. It's hard to just read a couple chapters a week or even seven chapters a week. The story is just too good. So I know a lot of you guys are effectively doing more than one reread just by doing this reread podcast. But... This time, I think even though Arya and Sirio is an all-time favorite and there's these three amazing Ned chapters that are so climactic, and Eddard 12 did probably have the most discussion out of all these in our Flick discussion group, at least. I'm going to say Danny 5, though. This was the first time I really thought about the gender translation error applied, uh, the same one that's applied to the prince slash princess that was promised, and applying it to the stallion mounts the world. Now I'm thinking it should be the mayor that mounts the world, even though mounting isn't really what mayors do. Whatever, it works still. <laughs> and speaking of the world, maybe there's... through their mounting, Danny and John, <laughs> stallion and the mayor. It's it's like mountains the world. <laughs> the mayor that mountains the world. She adds mountains everywhere. And speaking of the world, there is really good world building in that chapter as well. And several of the others, especially John 6, I think really stands out because it has the Werewood Grove, the Grove of Nine. But we'll get to that. We're starting off with Sansa 3, the one where Sansa yells that Joff is not like Robert, not like that drunken king at all. A.K. the gang gets sent back to Winterfell. They don't actually go. They just get sent there. Doesn't ever happen. 
Littlefinger is creepy to Sansa again, and he's going to be much worse to poor Jane Poole here. Soon to be fake Arya. Littlefinger tells Sansa life is not a song right at the beginning of this chapter, yet three or four more times in this chapter, <laughs> Sansa thinks of how it is still a song. He wouldn't send Solora, Sansa told Jane Poole that night as they shared a cold supper by lamplight. She, so she is still seeing life a song, but as we see Jane there, it's anything but. It is not a song. And what happens to Jane later? Well, if it is a song, it's a really tragic, sad song. Sansa's going to start learning. She has started learning, let's be clear, but it hasn't turned yet. She hasn't gotten out of dreamland, songland yet. It's it's going to, the hard lessons are going to have kind of started, but they're going to get a lot harder in the next chapter. And then when her father is killed in Arya 5, which we don't see through her point of view, but she's clearly a witness to, well, that's going to make the music stop, so to speak. The songs are still in her life, though, at this point. And Joffrey is really still the focus of that. In particular, while she's starting to see the truth of other things, Joffrey is still, well, completely, he hasn't become unforgivable yet. He's still her, you know, magical promised prince. Well, not that kind of promise, but you know what I mean. In the songs, the knight never killed magical beasts. They just went up to them and touched them and did them no harm. But she knew Joffrey liked hunting, especially the killing part. Only animals, though. Sansa was certain her prince had no part in murdering Jory and those other poor men. That had been his wicked uncle, the Kingslayer. She knew her father was still angry about that, but it wasn't fair to blame Joff. That would be like blaming her for something that Arya had done. Oh, yeah, well, Sansa, uh, you've blamed Arya for several things that weren't her fault, and she still insists that that Micah attacked Joffrey, even though, hey, we all saw that. Didn't happen. (laughs) But this is a young girl who isn't quite done with that dream, as we said, and it's only her third chapter. In terms of real dreams, though, she actually lies to Jane about dreaming of Joffrey, but and she actually dreams of Lady, which is really interesting here, because it's underpinning Sansa's attitudes as as, as much as anything else. Sansa sat up. Lady, she whispered. For a moment, it was as if the direwolf was there in the room, looking at her with those golden eyes, sad and knowing. She had been dreaming, she realized. Lady was with her, and they were running together, and, and. Trying to remember was like trying to catch the rain with her fingers. The dream faded, and Lady was dead again. Man, that's hard to read. Why'd you make me read that? (laughs) I'm sorry. My eyes actually got teary. I could tell. (laughs) I'm sorry. She's not wrong that Joffrey didn't kill Lady. I mean, that is certainly on Cersei, no doubt. But Joffrey could have said something. I mean, you're supposed to speak up when your betrothed's pet is about to be executed for no reason. Joffrey can say anything he wants. He's the prince. What's Cersei going to do, get mad at him? Robert hardly parents him at all. Like, nothing's going to happen there. Joffrey could have said plenty, and he didn't. But in the case of Jory and the others killed by Jamie's men, well, Joffrey didn't do that, and he couldn't have actually done anything. That, that's something he couldn't have even stopped. But he did try to have Bran murdered. Yeah, but, of course, she doesn't know that yet. <laughs> There's a lot to, well, she may never learn that. <laughs> we'll see. There's a lot to compare to Rob here right down to the presence of a character named Jane. Rob is traumatized by hearing of the loss of his brother to Theon and is wounded, and he sleeps with Jane Westerling and is then decides he's bound by honor to marry her. 
Sansa has just lost Lady, and she's pining for Joffrey, who isn't at all like Jane Westerling, but Sansa and Joff's relationship doesn't exactly progress. And it was originally meant to, again, the foreshadowing that was cut off or the original plan was for them to get married and have kids and all that. And this line is interesting considering that they were originally intended to have kids by George. I'll give him a son with golden hair and one day he'll be king of all the realm, the greatest king that ever was, as brave as the wolf and as proud as the lion. Hmm. I wonder what George R. R. Martin had planned for Sansa and Joff's kids or kids. Is it, you know, was that really going to happen, maybe? And it's interesting to think about that when we have this Rago chapter coming right up. That's another kid that, well, technically was conceived, but clearly didn't actually become anything. All the visions of what Rago would become didn't happen, just like Oh, he this. became something. Oh, he became something. Yeah, he became something. <laughs> That's the active word, something. Not sure exactly what, but something. And so, obviously, so I'm wondering if there's a Stark Lannister marriage still in the cards somewhere. Obviously Tyrion Sansa that's that happens, but it also doesn't go anywhere and there certainly haven't been children and it doesn't seem likely that they will uh, circle back to that, you know, and I don't, it's hard to fathom where another Sansa, uh, Sansa mm-hmm. Lannister uh, Stark marriage could happen, especially if Sansa is the Stark in question. So I just, I don't think that seems likely, but it's worth considering. Then we have this interesting quote here. I love him as much as Queen Nerys loved Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, as much as Jonquil loved Ser Florian. I want to be his queen and have his babies. And that's a little strange because Nerys was Aemon's bro- uh, sister. Aemon was her brother. And I, and I lean, and even though the rumors were, according to Aegon the Unworthy and a few others, that they slept together, I lean towards them not sleeping together. I think most of the fandom would agree with that, that it wasn't that kind of relationship. But And Sansa says, I want to have babies, so she's not thinking of that style of relationship. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, Targaryens, eh, what are you going to do? Back to the Lannisters. This little part I'm calling forehead shadowing. Did father send them to hunt down Jamie Lannister? Sansa sighed. They rode with Lord Beric to behead Sir Gregor Clegane. Oh, you're so stupid. They rode with Lord Beric to Bedford. <laughs> Actually, there will be quite a hunt for Jamie later. <laughs> they will be, and uh, the Brotherhood does use Brienne to capture him. So, hey, it's gonna happen, but not quite this way. Now, Septim Mordain is horror struck at this talk of heads on spikes. A lady doesn't talk that way. Well, if she only knew that her own head would, well, no one tell her. <laughs> Another line here strikes us a bit awkwardly. Just let me stay, and I promise to be as fine and noble and courteous as the queen. Father's mouth twitched strangely. Yeah, not as, as fine and noble and courteous as the queen, eh? Don't be like Cersei too much there, Sansa. But there are lessons to be learned from her. Some of them are the negative kind. Some of, some of them are the don't do as I do type of lesson. But Sansa can learn some useful things from Cersei, things she can repeat later as well. This is where Sansa's sense of character is starting to develop here. She has some interesting insight. It's interesting because it's not something Cersei is bad at, nor it's, but she's not great at it either. So Sansa, I think, maybe has more talent in this regard of the kind of thing that Sirio uh, is teaching Arya about, seeing what's really there. Sansa felt tears in her eyes. He is not, he's not the least bit like that old drunken king. She screamed at her sister, forgetting herself in her grief. Father looked at her strangely. Gods, he swore softly, out of the mouth of babes. 
With a few exceptions, she's still blind to who Joffrey is, for example. But she's right that she's he's nothing like Robert, right? Like Robert and Joffrey are both crappy. She hasn't seen that in Joff yet. But they are crappy for different reasons, for the most part. Seeing people who f- for who they really are is vital, especially at court. It's a lesson Littlefinger and Varys know really well. They're particularly skilled at that. Ditto lesser-known characters like Jenna Lannister, even Roose Bolton, and Jake and Hagar, and of course, Sirio Farrell. Arya made a face. Not of Joffrey's his father, she said. He's a liar and a craven, and anyhow, he's a stag, not a lion. Nice move by George here. Arya fails the test Sirio is about to give her six chapters from now at the end of this episode. How nice that it came together like that. Sirio talks of that the, seeing a tomcat and seeing for it for what it really was, despite the sea lord telling everybody, look how nice this cat is. Instead of a cat, though, this time it's a lion. So that's really neat. I did not catch that, you know, in prior rereads. Sansa sees that Joffrey is a lion. Arya sees a stag. Now, family name-wise, Arya's right, but that's thinking. Seeing is what Sirio says you need to do before you think. You're supposed to see, then think. Mm. And... Well, because Sansa is seeing without thinking, she is thinking, but seeing first, she sees the simple truth that Joffrey has zero features from his Baratheon side because, well, why would he? He's not Baratheon. So Sansa is right that he's all lion. Arya is not seeing with her eyes. But Sansa is also not seeing things properly as much as we're giving her credit for here. There's, like I said, there's plenty of things she's not seeing yet as a 12-year-old girl wouldn't. She laments the loss of court, her prince, the tournaments. Well, she's going to end up disliking all those things in the long term. So she's not going to end up missing them, really. Well, maybe not the tourneys. She's not going to dislike tourneys that we know of. But maybe she will. Maybe she'll end up hating those two, especially given she's at one uh, where we left off. And there's certain things at the Tournament of the Winged Knights that could go wrong, certainly, if not in the short term, then the long term, certainly. Here's another little line of note, though, that I thought was important, kind of off the uh, little miscellaneous note. It won't be so bad, Sansa, Arya said. We're going to sail on a galley. It will be an adventure. Ah, Of course, we love to see a quote about Arya looking forward to sailing. We've, of course, uh, in our hunt for foreshadowing and clues for what's coming, it's really nice to see more validation or possible validation that Arya is on the Alyssa Farman track. And Which even I, if she's not, we see that parallel. And, and seeing it. Nymeria, obviously. Like yeah. Just, yeah, seeing Arya actually sailing away. Yep, very much so. Gotta like that. Definitely hadn't caught it's that It's her one theme song now. Sail away. <laughs> Some notes from Sir Buckley. Always catch him on Isle of Faces podcast, the Scraps and Scrolls editions. There's always more than we could be saying here, and Joe takes care of that. He points out that Sansa, not only is she stuck in her dreams, uh, but she's kind of forcing it on the world. She's kind of projecting, you could say, which is a great term to use when you're thinking about um, dreams and, and, and things that are visualized. She talks about how Laura should have hunted Gregor and thinking of it about, you know, how that would have been end worthy of a song. And she, she thinks about how Yorin shouldn't be one of the Watchmen because he's you know, all smelly and dirty and doesn't look all noble. And Arya's too messy, and Joffrey should be the one to hunt the White Heart. She's framing all this in terms of how it would be if it were a song. Um, and now, another note, we read this quote earlier, but just this little hint of it. But she knew Joffrey liked hunting, especially the killing part. 
Now, whoa, the killing part. She knows Joffrey likes killing. Now she immediately justifies that by saying, but he only kills animals. Now, we in the modern world know that people who like killing animals, not I'm not saying hunting makes you a murderer, but people who like the process of killing, who enjoy it, even if it's just animals, no, it's not how it works. If you... Someone who enjoys killing animals would almost certainly enjoy killing people if they could get away with it. And, but of course, how's a 12-year-old girl in a medieval fantasy setting going to get that? She's not ready for that, but she will. Now, here's a little tough bit about Jane. Uh, here's another quote for us to read. Sansa thought she was being silly. Jane was only a steward's daughter, after all, and no matter how much she mooned after him... Lord Beric would never look at someone so far beneath him, even if she hadn't been half his age. Yeah, Sansa is reflecting her mother, Catelyn, by thinking of Jane getting the dating hierarchy wrong, similar to how Catelyn thinks about Mia and Mr. Redford, Michael Redford. And Catelyn turned out to be right about that one. And in a way, Sansa turns out to be wrong here in a very brutal, tragic way. Because Jane does end up marrying even a lord even higher than Beric, which is, but not as herself. Because she marries Ramsay Snow, of course, when he's Ramsay Bolton. And he's the lord of Winterfell, which is a higher seat than uh, Blackhaven. So, yikes. That is a real tragic irony there. Jane does get, uh, you know her lordly husband, but it's even worse than what Sansa wishes for and gets, and even worse than what Arya wishes for and gets, and all these other things. Really bad. Uh, a lot of people caught that one, that uh, Nina and some others in our Facebook group were pointing to that one and had different takes on it. Really good, really good thoughts on that. Lots of great takes on this chapter. Sansa's interesting in this way. A lot of people have new thoughts on her the second time around because you know where she's going. When you read her the first time, it's pretty easy, especially this chapter. This is maybe her at her worst. It's it, When people cite that they don't like Sansa or they dislike her, this is probably the chapter that stands out the most. She's, she's pretty callous. She's still focused on Joffrey. It, it's hard to, to like how she is here. But this is just one chapter, and we know uh, because we are rereading, most of us, we know what's coming and we know that she becomes a lot better. We know that she grows up. She becomes interesting in a lot of new ways. And if the show is indication at all, there's so much more coming that we're going to love in the long run. So it makes it easier this time around to have that sympathy because you know where she's going. You know that she's a product of her environment. And part of that is we know the environment better. It's harder to pin someone as a product of their environment when you don't fully grasp the environment. But all of us are so much well-versed and so much more well-versed in Westeros than we were years ago that it's much easier to see it that way and to not blame a child for who she is, especially because she grows out of it. You know, it's one thing to say, to look at an adult that's like Sans and say, well, this kid had a chance to grow out of being that way and never did. And now they're an adult that's like this. But at a kid, you got to give them a chance. And that's, I mean, that's the lesson of Ned. You don't kill someone for the wrongs they will do. And of course, that's killing, but it's the same thing. You don't punish people for the person that they will become. You punish them for the person they are. And a child is not what they're going to be. A child never stays the same. All right. Um, One other point here from Tree Girl on Flick. Really great quote here. 
She says, I'm just reading this directly from her, her post. She says, Sansa is so clearly full of hormones. She's rebellious, naughty, emotionally overwrought, totally self-centered, and boy crazy. Katie Kaboom. There's a reason we females go through this stage, and her name is Estrogen. How George nails this so well is beyond me. Sisters? George did have sisters. That might help. Uh, but honestly, I couldn't tell you how he nails it so well. But I'm, I'm glad to see that take. Because as a, as a man, I can't obviously uh, weigh in on how well that's uh, done. So it's good to see uh, someone saying that because I didn't know that for sure. And uh, it obviously adds to the line of sympathy. You know, if, if, if like a boy at the same age is you know, obsessed with girls and in this setting, they'll be obsessed with swords and fighting and proving themselves and all that. And that's not great either. All right, let's move on. We've got Eddard 12, the one where Cersei says, you win or you die, a.k.a. the gang figures out about all the incest. It's also the one that the fandom has debated quite a lot. Ned's mercy, his strategic thinking, Cersei's perspective, etc. It's a, it's a very debated one. Pain is a gift from the gods, Lord Eddard, Grand Maester Pycelle told him. Okay. Uh, okay, Pycelle, a gift from the gods, what a... He is so ponderous. <laughs> a ponderous tome, well, a ponderous man. Why have man. milk of the poppy then if it's a gift from the gods? <laughs> it's good. Ned is really funny here. He's like, I, he says, you know, there is no greater healer. He's like, I always thought that was you. <laughs> that's got some good sarcasm. So that's how he starts his chapter. And while there's no mention of lack of sleep outright, which is a running theme for Ned, it seems likely given this pain. Like, how do you sleep through all that pain, right? And he definitely drinks to dull the pain a bit, even though he admits it will slow his mind. Since Ned knows how serious things are and he knows drinking is going to slow his mind, the implication is the pain is just that bad. The old man hurriedly gathered up his things and took his leave. Ned had little doubt that he was bound straight for the royal apartments to whisper at the queen. I thought you had best know indeed, as if Cersei had not instructed him to pass along her father's threats. Yeah, so th this is a continuous refrain. Ned is, you know, on to Pycelle. And Tyrion is going to be on to Pycelle as well in a similar manner. But, of course, Tyrion is going to deal far more severely with Pycelle than Ned does, although not as severely as, say, Varys does at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Next in comes Littlefinger, and he name-drops Lady Tanda, a.k.a. the Stokeworth, who we uh, mention in our discussion on Braun that can be found in our bonus episode, Where Are They Now? Tyrion's Trials and Travails. That's a Patreon-only episode. And prior to that one, we made a Where Are They Now? on Ned's tourney, the tourney of the hand that he did not want, which mentions the Brotherhood, the formation of which is alluded to here. I would have given a hundred silver stags to have been a roach in the rushes when he learned that Lord Barrack was off to behead his brother. Even a blind man could see the hound loathed his brother. <laughs> ah, but Gregor was his to loathe, not yours to kill. Once Dondarrion lops the summit off our mountain, the Clegane lands and incomes will pass to Sandor, but I wouldn't hold my water waiting for his thanks. Not that one. Yeah, I don't think Sandor would thank anyone for killing his brother for him, and I don't think he is terribly concerned about those those lands and incomes. I mean, he, he doesn't not care about them, I think. I mean, he did care about having the money he won from the tournament. He knows that money is important in this world, but he's not, you know, a greedy guy as far as we can tell. Anyway, that's a build-up to much bigger things that we don't exactly know the ending to in the books, the Sandor and um, Gregor stuff, that is. 
And Gregor is a rare exception to the name of the following section, which I'm calling Mercy is Never Wrong, a, a, basically a quote directly from Ned. But maybe Ned was, maybe that's taken out of context, because Ned certainly has executed people before. He's certainly not shown mercy sometimes. But I think he's thinking of the children when he says that line. Yet last night he had dreamt of Rhaegar's children. Lord Tywin had laid the bodies beneath the Iron Throne, wrapped in the crimson cloaks of his house guard. That was clever of him. The bodies did, the blood did not show so badly against the red cloth. The little princess had been barefoot, still dressed in her bedgown. And the boy, the boy... Ned could not let that happen again. The realm could not withstand a second Mad King, another dance of blood and vengeance. He must find some way to save the children. Dance is used here again. Another, oh, It's always a noteworthy choice of words when dance is used instead of war. Uh, but so is Ned's thought process in general here. Outwardly, it comes down to duty. He follows the letter of the law. Joffrey is not the heir, and that's that. The, the law says Stannis is the heir, period. That's it. That's how it goes. But in his mind, he wants to prevent war. This all shows how where his real concern lies. And in that, it's a conundrum because Littlefinger's plan is arguably the better one, even though it's far more corrupt. It's against the law. It's, it's not a matter of honor. But he's probably right that it will result in less bloodshed. So he maybe has the right angle, but of course it's for the wrong reasons. It's also a conundrum kind of unique to monarchical systems like this one. You know, we don't really have that issue uh, in most other forms of government. But it's, uh, and this is part of why this this chapter get, got so much debate on both Flick and Facebook, because, you know, what's the right thing to do here? Where, what's the most important duty to uphold? And how do you do that? So we have this next bit, which I'm calling a badge of honor, because it's Ned repeating uh, the line that Cersei gave to Robert after Robert hit her. And of course, it's a badge of honor in my mind and in a lot of yours, most of yours, I would assume that Ned thinks first of the children. Uh, that is a noble, honorable thing. Now, Ned informs Cersei that he's going to tell Robert. It sounds kind of reckless, and it's fair to say Ned underestimated Cersei in general, but despite that, Cersei got really lucky here. Let's be clear on that. It looks a little more bumbling on Ned's part if you go purely by the results, but if you look at, if we do a real breakdown here, well, the biggest piece of luck for Cersei is that the boar actually killed Robert. Getting Robert drunk was certainly not a surefire method of assassination. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's eventually going to work, right? Get Robert drunk enough times, eventually he's going to screw up and the boar's going to get him. But you can't count on that happening this particular time. If you really want to make sure he's dead, you can't go with something so uncertain, for example, they weren't even out there in the first place to go after a boar. They were chasing the White Heart. And that's not going to get Robert killed. So that's lucky on Cersei's part. Getting Robert drunk, yeah, that's not going to necessarily result in death. So if Robert had returned ungored, which was a reasonable expectation for Ned, Cersei's moves become really limited. She can't well, Ned won't have to bother with the City Watch, so she can't flip them on him because Robert's going to be there. The City Watch is not going to turn on Robert. Not likely, anyway. So Cersei's moves are pretty limited to, like, a full coup or something like that. And now I'm not going to say 
Again, I'm not going to say Robert's death was not inevitable because they were coming for him. They were going to get him one way or another. But the fact that it happened right at this key moment, bad luck for Ned. The fact that it happened on this particular hunting trip was not for a foregone conclusion, not even close. More evidence that Cersei knows her situation is kind of desperate is that she makes this move on Ned, this, this seduction. Recall in The Clash of Kings, Cersei's going to tell Sansa that she would try for seduction if it was anyone other than Stannis because she knows that she it wouldn't work on Stannis. Now, I don't know whether she really thought it would work on Ned either, because it kind of like from our perspective, it would never have worked on Ned either. I mean, maybe, yeah, sure, Stannis. I mean, Stannis does sleep with Melisandre. It might actually be more likely to work on Stannis than Ned, actually. But it's not likely to work on either of them. But we got to consider Cersei's perspective here. Just because we think that there's no chance it'll work for Cersei, does she really think that? Does she know that? I don't know that she does, because she raises the point of the grieving sister and Lady Ashara, all this. It basically calls Ned, a, she calls Ned a hypocrite over Jon Snow. And I don't know if she's just trying to, you know, dig the knife, trying to needle him a bit, just insult him, or whether she believes that he's actually a hypocrite. I kind of lean that way. I kind of think that she thinks Ned's nobility is partially an act, because she's pretty darn cynical herself. And of course, a first-time reader is going to, believe uh, Cersei so, to, to a certain point because first-time reader probably still thinks that Ned is John's father. So there is some hypocrisy there, maybe, if Ned you know, cheated on Catelyn. And Cersei might think that Ned was truly out drinking at a brothel the night that she encou- he encountered Jamie and had that street fight. It's not doesn't seem all that credible, but Cersei could believe it. You know, it's not uh, it's not out of it's not out of line here. And of course, uh, after the offer, Ned rejects it and Cersei hits him and again shows his quick wit. You know, using using that line, I'll wear it as a badge of honor. Now, it's not really fair to compare those slaps. Uh, Ned's received a a, a slap from Cersei, who isn't very strong, while Robert, you know, caves in Cersei's face, well, not caves in, gives her a big bruise. It sounds like he used his hammer, but no, but he, he bruised her face really badly. He was all swollen. So uh, it's also interesting, but that's also interesting too, that she's trying to seduce Ned when her face is half swollen. <laughs> you know, like, hmm, look at me. She's probably turning the other side of her face to him. Uh, anyway, Ned doesn't, Cersei throws out the bit about Robert whispering Lyanna in bed, which is just, there's a little bit more about this, like, geez, this is not just a one-sided situation. This is very human. It's more realistic in that everything is not so clear-cut. It's not just good guys versus bad guys. Cersei has, you know, she's the villain here, but she's not fully villainous. Robert's kind of villainous, too, if not fully villainous. Ned's, now... Ned's attempts to keep the children out of the Game of Thrones is a clear reminder that he's the best man around at court in terms of honor, nobility, all that. But we brought up Varys and Kevin earlier in this chapter, and that was not just a side mention. That also ties back into here. Because what does Varys say to Kevin after he shoots him with the crossbow? He says, there are many men, or there are many like you, good men in service to bad causes. How does that not more perfectly apply to Ned serving Robert. That is totally a good man in service to a bad cause. Oh, maybe Robert isn't a cause, <laughs> but he's, he's a, you know, bad king or a bad person, what have you. Same deal, basically. 
it's gonna it, it's possible that's gonna be Varys. Yeah, he's not really a good man. No, either, but he but thinks he, he is. He thinks he is. Yeah. I don't know. And that will and that kind of proves that it's not a good cause. Like what he's doing proves that yeah, it's not a good cause. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so here's some more notes from Joe. He points out that the white heart is found torn apart by wolves, which reminiscent of what happens at the beginning, um, meaning the the stag and the dire wolves found uh, after the execution of Garrod. And, well, it's kind of the wolves kind of worked against Ned there <laughs> that uh, delayed the hunting trip, which, of course, things went badly because of that. Now, even after... It's neat that even after figuring out definitively that Cersei and Jamie were responsible for trying to kill Ned, I mean Bran, which he pretty much knew already, but he got confirmation of it, doesn't fire up his anger. It doesn't make him more vindictive. He still just is like, nope, I'm not killing your kids, even though you tried to kill mine. So that's just, you know, not even for a second does he consider that. It's, it's never, killing kids is just not in his wheelhouse at all. It's just abhorrent to him. And Joffrey's returning, also another thing that, that, that Cersei got lucky with was because of the White Heart was found killed, Robert wanted to go off and kill, you know, find this boar. He wanted to continue the hunting trip, delay it, keep it going. But half the party was like, now nah, we're done, we're coming back. And because Joffrey was one of the people that came back early, well, that timing proved critical because she can't pull off that coup without Joffrey's presence and without the possibility of Renly grabbing him or anything like that. So that worked out pretty well for her, too. Now, a couple of questions and answers from the chats, most of them from prior chats. Um, As always, Facebook and Flick are the best, (laughs) best places to discuss these chapters ahead of time. Uh, the Turia Damiana points out Ned's underestimation of Cersei, and it's an example of misogyny in the system, and I definitely agree with that. And Cersei herself is someone that thinks about that a lot and how she should be the one wearing the sword and all that. And, yeah, it is certainly a system that tells people to be a certain way. Uh, the men have to be warriors. The women have to be, you know, all ladylike. Sansa's a perfect example of that, something we discussed right before this chapter. It's kind of a neat thing that these chapters are back-to-back like that. And they get to highlight that situation. And Ned also under, he underestimated Arya. He underestimates Sansa. He underestimates a lot of people. And in fact, I do, I do think a lot of it's gender, but some of it's just he underestimates people who aren't in the nobility as well. Some of it's also classist. Do you think he estimates people well? <laughs> you don't, next time you'll <laughs> estimate me. And that's a good, it's a great point by Detour there. It's, uh, it's, it's just baked into the system. It's, it's one of those things that, they're taught from a very early age, and it's hard to break free of. John Hagee points out Ned tells Cersei to go to Ib or the Summer Isles, and it's kind of funny to think of Cersei in either of those places and how out of place she would be. He says absurd. Uh, absurd. Yes. Absurd. But yes, I mean, just picture Cersei up in Ib. <laughs> yeah, that would be Either absurd. one is just a ridiculous suggestion. She would be. So unhappy. So out of yeah. sorts. <laughs> She'd be happier in the Summer Isles, but it's Probably. close enough to Westeros. It's not like he's telling her to go. Like, it'd be more, it would make more sense if he was like, go to Ib or Karth. It's a reminder of how she is the most stationary character. 
Yeah, that's true. <laughs> of, of like main character, she's the one that travels. She travels to Winterfell at the beginning well, and I'm then curious. pretty we've, much doesn't go anywhere. We've, we've long thought, I mean, the fandom has, has thought maybe Cersei would be relocating and we'd so see Castle Rock. Rock yeah. But I don't know if that'll happen, if it'll go down similarly to the show or what. Yeah. I, I think I, I think the show just streamlined things and that she can I, die yeah. somewhere else. I think we'll see Casually Rock. I think it'll be her that we see it, who, whose eyes we see it through too. I'm, I've, I've got I'm pretty optimistic about that. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Daenerys Five, the one where Danny eats a horse heart, aka the gang crowns Viserys in gold. It's also the one with the stallion that mounts the world, the crones of the Dosh Kaleen, and quite a bit of foreshadowing. The heart was steaming in the cold evening air when Caldrogo set it before her, raw and bloody. Yeah, you want eat? Yeah, Mord should be standing right there. He would fit in this scene perfectly. Now, the funny thing is, is the point of this ceremony, the funny thing is, is that the purpose here of the ceremony is to ensure that she has a strong, healthy son. Hmm. <laughs> Whoops. That was, well, he was a son. <sighs> Strong and healthy, though. Yeah. There's lots of great world building in this one. We've really learned quite a lot about the Dothraki by this point, something the show barely does in eight full seasons. Yeah. The, the womb of the world, which is the great lake the Dothraki believe life came from, the mother of mountains, which only men can ascend, which is weird, the mother of mountains only men can be on. It's kind of strange. But, hey, that's, their, that's how they live, right? That's their culture. <laughs> it's interesting to see the other calls. Well, some other calls are present for this ceremony. And again, we see statues of stolen gods. It's very cool. Even the mightiest of calls bowed to the wisdom and authority of the Dosh Kaleen. Still, it gave Danny the shivers to think that one day she might be sent to join them, whether she willed it or no. The shivers, eh? Now, I don't think the shivers from Fire and Blood is is uh, is what's going to kill Danny. It kills little Danny in Fire and Blood, and little Danny has a lot of parallels to this Daenerys, but I think that's a red herring. I don't think that she'll die to a magical disease like that. But it's still interesting to think about. And it's also interesting. I looked around. There's so many times where Danny shivers, where it's just a kind of a stimulus response she has uh, to many things. But shivering also is a big part of some foreshadowing that we have been looking for for a long time. The show gave us a bit of a clue to it, but it didn't fully resolve the foreshadowing that's seen in the books here uh, that comes a bit later in A Clash of Kings 4. Beneath the Mother of Mountains, a line of naked crones crept from a great lake and knelt shivering before her, their gray heads bowed. Now this is probably related to the burning of the calls that we see on the TV show, and but it might just... The full scene may involve not just the calls being slain, but the Dash Kaleen kneeling before. They may have gotten rid of that part, uh, the part of them. And the reason they would be in the lake is because, hey, there's flame everywhere. They would go jump in the lake to, you know, not burn. So that that makes sense. And once all the fires die out, they would come out of the lake and kneel before her. But it could also just be symbolic of the fact that this is the birthplace of the Dothraki, according to them. And... You know, this is the the great the leaders of of their culture, in a sense, coming out and, you know, from their place of birth, kneeling to her. Uh, it's, it's symbolic in a lot of ways. But there's also this line that Danny thinks at the end as Viserys is dying. He was no dragon, Danny thought, curiously calm, 
fire cannot kill a dragon. Now, I don't think that Danny is going to go through the burning process twice in the show. George said that the birth of her dragons was a miracle. So I don't know that she's going to be fire immune twice, that that's how she's going to take out the calls like she did on the TV show. It's possible, though. Uh, but I kind of doubt it. Still, it's an interesting concept. You know, you've got, if you're a true dragon, are you burned? John burned his hand. Quentin's entire body was burned. So mm, it's, it's, it's curious still at this point. But there's more prophecy here. This is a little more straightforward. Daenerys had gone cold all over. He says you shall have a splendid golden crown that men shall tremble to behold. So that's a Drogo saying what's coming for Viserys. Now that is Drogo kind of speaking like a prophecy. It's kind of neat that all this talk of prophecy and prophecy not going the way we think it's going to. And here we have a perfect example. Viserys is like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted a splendid golden crown that men shall tremble to behold. Yeah, misreading, tricky wording, not trusting prophecy, that is just a common refrain for A Song of Ice and Fire, and we're seeing it in many different ways right here. But it's so much more powerful on reread because we know that so many other things are coming. We have the sense of what these passages are referring to later, which as before, it was just like, oh, this is exciting, but we don't know where it's going. And of course, the stallion prophecy is the most important of the prophecies listed here, I guess. And, you know, speaking of misreading it again, like I said, I think this is the mayor that mounts the world because the, the stallion, they're almost certainly referring to Daenerys, this prophecy about uniting all the peoples of the world into one giant herd. The stallion is supposed to do that, uniting everyone, riding to the ends of the earth. All the people of the world will be his herd. But that's not a good thing. You don't want to be a herd. A herd isn't, a, you don't want to be in a herd. And the cows are, are brutal. They're, they're not good leaders in that sense. Her dream of uniting all the world into one didn't go over well on the TV show either, and we can see why. I mean, eternal summer, no one, no one dying. That's that's too much. That's not that's not that's not a vision of a great future. That's I don't know what that is, but it's not good. It's it's strange and and uninviting and and creepy. <laughs> but before uniting other peoples of the world, Danny's got a long way to go. There's these ones close by to deal with first. There's frenemies to deal with. Behind the wise women came the others, Kal Ogo and his son, the Kalaka Fogo, Kal Jomo and his wives, the chief men of Drogo's Kalasar, Danny's handmaids, the Kal servants and slaves, and more. Bells rang and drums beat a stately cadence as they marched along the God's Way. There are those bells again. Now... Kal Drogo will fight and kill Kal Ogo, just mentioned, in the Lazarine village where Miri Mazdur is found. And then he's going to immediately kill the Kalaka, Fogo, who becomes Kal when Ogo is killed. And Kal Drogo brags specifically about killing two Kals that day. But of course, the stallion, Slap Mare, excuse me, who mounts the world, is the real frenemy here. Friends to few. Everyone cheers for his birth, even though we know they're really cheering for Danny, or we suspect they're cheering for Danny without knowing it. And she's going to wreak havoc on a lot of them before taking them over. So they're cheering for their own death, a lot of them here. And, and then we have lines like this. As swift as the wind he rides, and behind him his calisar covers the earth, men without number, 
with Arox shining in their hands like blades of razor glass. Razor grass. Razor grass, razor glass. <laughs> Fierce as a storm, this prince will be. His enemies will tremble before him, and their wives will weep tears of blood and rend their flesh in grief. The bells in his hair will sing his coming, and the milkmen in the stone tents will fear his name. Fierce as a storm, you say. Hmm, storm, stormborn. Hmm, she would know about such things, I suppose. And it looks prince, should be princess, just like prince that was promised prophecy Maester Eamon mentions to Sam. Yeah, that's a big one. And the shining Arax make me think of Melisandre lighting them a fire on the TV show, but there's no actual mention of flame or fire in that line, so I might be might be reading a little something there that isn't there. The bells in his hair that will sing his coming, though. Yeah, that one there's no doubt about. That's the bells we're talking about. There's a lot of bells going on here. This is one of the big this has been one of the big surprises for us in comparing the TV show to the books and just thinking about how big the bells have been. Yeah, I think a lot of people, are, ourselves obviously included, were like, you know, the bells aren't essential to something that would cause her to do something like that. Well, we're starting to see that the bells are just all over the place. You know, um, it's it's really neat. Definitely one of the bigger, uh, one of the elements of Daenerys' Daenerys's arc that has been really uplifted by things that we didn't uh, think about, didn't, you know, emphasize before. I Yeah, I think really to clarify what I... I Rather than in the TV show, people thinking that she was set off by that. Yeah. Perhaps it's more like in in the books, they herald this destruction. Mm-hmm. You know, the bells ring isn't something that, yeah. And in the show, they talked about how it's supposed to feel like victory and it doesn't. Yeah. And if the bells mean victory and it's like, no, this is not victory. I'm yeah. still this. I'm still that. Then that would be maddening, mm-hmm. frustrating, you know, tragic. Um, and then, of course, the, the quote also concer- concerns this part about the milkmen in the stone tents fearing his name. Well, there's so much foreshadowing for Westeros rejecting Danny for being afraid of her because of all the, these elements that she brings to the table that people are afraid of, all these foreigners and these, you know, Eastern magic and these things that they're afraid of. And, well, the milkmen in the stone tents, that's Westeros. And they're going to fear if they, they will fear not his name, but her name because of all that, all those things that she's bringing. He will unite the Dothraki into a single calisar and ride to the ends of the earth. Or so it was promised. All the people of the world will be his herd. Consider what Danny says to John at the end of season eight. All that talk of conquering the world set it right. It's, it's very similar to this, to uniting the world Dothraki into a single calisar. And the use of the word promised here, or so it was promised... That's really telling because you would use, normally in a situation like this, I think you would use a word like prophesied or foretold. But promise, like who promised that? The prophets? The prophecy promised that? So it's, it's, it's just obviously, I think that language is meant to relate it to the prince that was promised uh, by using such a particular word there. Very cool. Very sneaky, George. So there's kind of more threes. I wrote a torrent of threes here. There aren't really that many more threes here. But there's the con, the constant... Uh, mention of threes in Danny's arc now, and here we have three calls watching this ceremony: Ogo, Jamo, and Drogo. And it's mentioned that, that Drogo has his three copper shadows following him, his blood riders. And George loves to use shadows in that in that light. <laughs> shadows in that light. Ha! And they proclaimed, "Rock, rock, rockage! A boy, a boy, a strong boy." Things done in threes like that. 
So that's pretty Dude, cool. Cracky sounds pretty good. Mm, Rahaj. <laughs> you've been learning from Dwight Shrew, <laughs> taking some Dothraki. That's right. I have to. I have to learn. You, to yeah, you need a, to learn a, it for your speaker. better call. For your better call, Drogo costume. <laughs> that's right. I can't. I won't be a good Dothraki lawyer if I don't speak Dothraki. Like, yeah, you need to be able to present a solid case completely in Dothraki. <laughs> Joe Buckley points out that this is the first properly laid out introduction to a pro- prophecy in a series full of prophecies. Ah, good point. Yeah. I didn't really think of it that way. There are so many. I didn't really think about how this was the first one. Arguably, some of the things Old Nan says are prophetic, but it's not. they're not said as prophecy. So, yeah, as far as an actual prophecy, yeah, this is the first one that's uh, said. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um... Naming conventions. There's some people wanted to know why it was that Danny got to name her kid and not Drogo. And, uh, you know, how does that work? Do Is that normal? Do, with the Dothraki having such a patriarchal society, some people wondered, well, why is it that the woman gets to name the kid? Well, we actually see that in Westeros quite a bit, too. Uh, certainly there are times where the, the man comes up with the name, and there are times when the woman does. I don't know that there's a system for it. It might just be, seems like sometimes the men say... All province, the children are the province of the women, so that includes naming them. But some men are more like, well, I want to choose the name because I'm the man and I get to decide. And and in general, I feel like the women would be conscientious to be like, this is a family name, so let's use something in line with that. Just like she did Rago to be in honor of Drogo. You know, she didn't just go Rhaegar. You know, she's able to... To parse that that would be kind of rude yeah that makes sense yeah because he because you know it's just like spitting in the face of dothraki culture if she doesn't have a name that's in line with that but she yeah. manages to honor right i don't know it's interesting yeah because also um the dash Kalines are so important you know the the, the crones also yeah. the retired crones <laughs> <laughs> and you know considering the importance they're given to dothraki society that might be part of it you know and they're they're all this stuff to do with child rearing and, and prophesying how the child's going to come and having the ceremony to make sure he comes out healthy you can see how naming the kid falls under that umbrella yeah um, another question about bells from Vibjorn G um, on Facebook. What about other bell symbolism, such as the bells of the Red Wedding that made the ghost of High Heart cry? Well, I think in that case, that's because little Jingle Bell, a little egg on the uh, simple-minded boy that Catelyn kills as revenge for all the things Walder does in that scene. And it's just sad because he's an innocent being killed. And uh, I think that's the part that gets the ghost of High Heart. But it is important. That's bells. That does matter. It's a good catch. And as I said, we will not be slacking off on catching anything to do with bells as we look out the rest of the way. So keep, uh, we'll have to remain patient. We can't go over all the bell stuff in one episode because there's so much more to come. That We could do a whole episode on bells, but it's not currently our plan. But maybe we will after by the end of uh, Valerie Reedus, we'll decide that's a, a worthy topic. So there will be lots more bells. John Connington's one of the biggest ones, the, the bells ringing at uh, Stony Sept, which remind him of his failure there and how he should have burned it, which, uh, you know, if he, he feels like he should have burned Stony Sept, then think about what he might do to King's Landing. If he thinks he should have burned Stony Sept, maybe he thinks he should burn King's Landing. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. John O'Donnell from Facebook with a great take here. I'm going to read his whole comment as a quote here. So if one thinks of Danny as a villain, this chapter is chock full of the kind of tales that get told later. She's a Dothraki witch who dines on the heart of a horse. She translated her brother's fatal words when she could have soothed her husband. Instead, she let him kill her brother so she could steal his claim to the throne. 
She insisted on watching as he died in agony and felt no emotion at his death. When they tell the story of her reign, they will say it began that night as she ate a bleeding heart and crowned her brother in molten gold. It began in blood and fire. Great take, John. That's really true because this isn't about what we think about Danny. I mean, it matters what we think of Danny, but it, within the story, what matters almost as much or more in a lot of ways is how the other characters see her. And we already see that happening at the end of Dance and with some of the spoiler chapters, how Danny is whispered to be uh, you know, murdering Quentin. And murdering her brother, Arianne thinks of things about her that aren't particularly accurate. They're, but you can see how these rumors would start. And so John is, is thinking along those lines. These are things that uh, people will say about her. Eating a heart. You know, this, they're, san- they're scandalous. They're sensational. We, we love to gossip about things. Think about how the Westerosi people will gossip about these things. The stories will really spread, and they're not good. <laughs> Other than the freeing of the slaves part, you know, they'll, they'll like that. There'll be certain things that people like about her. But there's all this on the, you know, if there's the pros and cons, or this is, the con list is pretty large for a lot of people, even if it's not necessarily a lot of us. But it is for a lot of us, too. John H. says, uh, John Hagee says, this chapter feels like one large religious ceremony. I do not think that is John Hagee because, John Hagee because that is spelled differently. Yeah, but I typed it. I think I just spelled oh, it. Yeah, okay. I didn't cut and paste it. I, yeah, I, I see. <laughs> uh, he says the, the heart slash communion slash washing slash purification, the union and sex, and then sacrifice. Yeah, you know, I'm not a big expert on that either. We know that George was raised Catholic and, and the rituals are a big part of Catholicism. Obviously not like this, but bits of it, you know, communion and sacrifice wait, and, and things wait. like that. When you went to Catholic church, they didn't make you eat a heart? I must have gone to the wrong church. <laughs> yeah, or the right church, I guess, depends on your perspective. A lot of churches do mention the word heart in the title, like, you know, the heart of Christ or whatever. Yeah, like, sacred hmm, heart I didn't, I didn't of take Lady that li- yeah. Mary Magdalene, of, exactly. of the heart of Jesus, of the heart of, of <laughs> Lady... Very yeah. long church title. <laughs> I never took that literally. Maybe I should have. And... It's point, uh, Nina points out with regards to things, Danny getting burned and whether she's immune to fire and all that. She burns her hands at the ends of a dance with dragons. Very true. She does uh, because of the, uh, she's eating burning horse flesh, <laughs> burnt horse flesh, and she burns, singes her hands. Great point. So yeah, she's clearly not just immune to fire. Uh, that was a magic thing. It's not just, you know, something that's a constant for her. So if y'all have any thoughts, anyone who knows more about religious ceremonies wants to weigh in on John's point there about uh, comparisons going on here, share that with us and we will let our fellow Westerians know how to find it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. But let's move on. It's time for Eddard 13, the one where Robert dies, a.k.a. the gang tweaks the royal will. He was walking through the crypts beneath Winterfell, as he had walked a thousand times before. Last of all, he came to the tomb where, where his father slept, with Brandon and Lyanna beside him. Promise me, Ned, Lyanna's statue whispered. She wore a garland of pale blue roses, and her eyes wept blood. This is the third to last Eddard chapter. And he's soon to join those tombs with her. 
and beside his father and other sibling. And indeed, George R. R. Martin uses very particular language with Ned. He regards Ned coldly, gives Littlefinger a stony stare, and speaks to Littlefinger with ice in his voice. It's all this ice and cold and stone. That's where he's going. As well, the theme of Ned not having a full night's sleep trucks onward steadily, but hey, soon he'll be resting for good. That was mean. <laughs> but here's another quote. Yeah, three men in white cloaks, he thought, remembering, and a strange chill went through him. Sir Barristan's face was as pale as his armor. Ned had only to look at him to know that something was dreadfully wrong. Now, this is just as the faces of those around Lyanna would look, right? The room smelled of smoke and blood and death is how he remembers that. So, of course, if that wasn't enough to remind Ned of the Tower of Joy, which is just this constant, ongoing thing, everyone and everything is just reminding Ned of the Tower of Joy, how about Robert just dropping this line yet again? Promise me, Ned. I promise. Promise me, Ned, Liana's voice echoed. Jeez, Robert, come on, man. <laughs> Making a promise to someone he loves on their deathbed, something with major implications for the royal succession? Oof, pretty familiar. Recall what I said about going after children, though, right? What did we say about what George has in store for characters that go after children? The girl, Daenerys. Only a child, you were right. That's why, the girl. God sent the boar, sent to punish me. Even Robert knows it's the worst of the bad things he's done, or at least as bad as anything else he's done, and he sees that the gods are punishing him for it. And this is part of why Ned reacts so coldly to Renly's offer, because it's, it's, he says it's dragging children from their beds. It's too familiar to what happened to Rhaenys and baby Aegon uh, and being killed and with the cloaks thrown over them and how he's thinking about how Tywin was clever to use red cloaks. It's just too, it's too traumatic for him to think of. And anything that reminds him of that, he's going to react negatively to. And of course, he's not into Renly's plan anyway. It's not like that's the only reason he rejects it. He's just not... It's not, it's not the honor, honorable way to go about things. It's not the law. Robert wants to know if he'll dream as he's drifting off, which is a nod to how Ned began the chapter, heading towards the crypts of Winterfell in his dreams, which is where Robert's going, well, not to Winterfell, but he's going to whatever, the, the endless sleep. Bad as Ares, the gods spare me. no. Ned told his dying friend, not so bad as Ares, your grace. Not near so bad as Ares. Yeah, and in fact, this proof, is, I agree. Ned's not just saying that to be nice. Yeah, Robert was a crappy king, but he definitely was better than Ares, especially if you compare their deathbed moments or their near-death moments. What, you know, when Ares saw that it was ending for him, he wanted to take everyone out with him. Robert, on the other hand, is regretting his actions and is having remorse for some of his final decisions. You could, you know, it's hard to do worse than trying to blow up the whole city. So by saying Robert's better than Ares, maybe we're not saying a lot, but it is true. And Robert thinks that naming Ned as Hand will be something else he's remembered for as a positive. Well, maybe he will, but Ned's tenure is awfully short. But we remember, the North remembers. So, hey, not entirely wrong, even if he's partially wrong there. The conversations with Littlefinger also are really important here, obviously. How he says he must have the city watch reminds us of why, you know, even though we wish Ned had been more like Cregan Stark, 
he didn't have an army with him like Cregan did, and that's why Ned didn't have all the same options available to him. You wear your honor like a suit of armor, Stark. You think it keeps you safe, but all it does is weigh you down and make it hard for you to move. Look at you now. You know why you summoned me here. You know what you want to ask me to do. You know it has to be done, but it's not honorable, so the words stick in your throat. Yep, it's true. Littlefinger really gets to the point. Remember what we talked about earlier about Littlefinger really understanding who he's dealing with, really having a strong sense of psychology and who uh, and how to get, you know, needle people he's talking to, how to really uh, get at what matters to them. He's doing it here. And this, of course, the way Littlefinger talks reminds us of Bronn and Tyrion in the Vale and how the Valemans, how their, their honor and pride makes them easy to manipulate and uh, kind of unwieldy in, uh, in battle. And hey, Littlefinger is, you know, in the Vale. So that's a nice tie in there. Well, then. In that speech, he also talks about how the man who pays them is the one that matters most, right? The, the person who pays the guards is, you know, maybe where the power resides. Now, of course, Varys will question that philosophy later, but we'll get to that when, when, when Clash of Kings comes around. But now, Littlefinger definitely proves that in a lot of ways, at least in, in his sphere of influence. He's bribed so many people and has them, you know, well, they're not loyal to him. They're loyal to that money. And uh, maybe in some cases they're worried about what happens if they go against him. And he, in the veil, in our Where Are They Now episode on Tyrion's trials in the veil, well, as we go through all those characters, we pointed out how many, the overwhelming majority of them were in Littlefinger's employ because of bribes. Or at least mostly because of bribes. Money is at the center of those relationships. So Ned is becoming a statue here, as the language tells us, as George is slyly hinting, but he's already has this rigidity, as we've seen, and Littlefinger in particular, as well as Varus, really, really manipulate, really, really manipulates him because of it. And it's problematic, too, because he's trying to aim to make a rigid man king, which nobody else, well, very few people want that, too. He wanted nothing so much as to seek out the godswood, to kneel before the heart tree and pray for the life of Robert Baratheon, who had been more than a brother to him. Men would whisper afterward that Eddard Stark had betrayed his king's friendship and disinherited his sons. He could only hope the gods would know better and that Robert would learn the truth of it in the land beyond the grave. Yeah, that's a really fun thing that we've been doing this time around as uh, History of Westeros um, as our, you know, purpose is to consider the backstory so much, to focus on it. We also like to think about how history will be written and how the backstory will look later and how Ned will be remembered. How, you know, they'll, men would whisper afterward that Eddard Stark had betrayed his king's friendship. He's executed as a traitor on the steps. We see the play in Bravos, both on TV and in the Mercy chapter of, well, we're, we're going to see it in the Mercy chapter after that. It's set up in the Mercy chapter that, uh, you know, how, the, how Bravos and other places interpret these events. And, well, it's not always going to go the way they think it will. It's usually going to go the sensational way, the way that mocks the nobility, the way that brings them down. And... You can go on. I'll, I'll, tell, I'll say it afterwards. Okay. And, you know, what are they... What else will they whisper about? What else will they call Ned? You know, what's, what other titles will they give him? What other invectives? What other pr- prize, uh, praise will they heap on him? Will they whisper about what he did to Jon Snow? If it comes out that Jon 
was, you know, had this claim all along. What will people say about Ned Stark hiding him? What will they inter- how will they interpret that? Will they see it selfishly? Will they see it as an act of, of nobility? I think people might be torn on it. Readers will make their own decision. I'm talking about how characters in Westeros will see it. What this made me think about was the religious aspect of it. Mm. Ned talks about a land beyond the grave yeah. where Robert could learn the truth. And they're obviously different religions. Mm. So Ned clearly thinks that if people live, I don't know, it just made me think about the afterlife and Westerosi thoughts about it. It's a good point. The differences between the, the faith of the seven and the old gods and how if they just think they're all going to the same place. I don't know. That's pretty cool thinking in light of all the religious ceremony in the last chapter with Danny too, like thinking about all that and kind of pair all that together. That's very cool. Yeah, right I, I don't know. Anyways, I, I have to do a search better for uh, any other mentions of the afterlife, I yeah. suppose, in Westeros in particular, because I think we hear more about it in Essos. So some notes from Joe here. He points out that Renly as wrong as he was in terms of honor and other things, he was right that striking quickly was important. And that's really going to backfire on Ned that he doesn't strike quickly. Much like we criticize Edmure while also praising him for protecting the small folk, you know, it's like bad strategy, but good honor and and good nobility, uh, good morality. Uh, It's kind of a similar situation where you have this conundrum of, of being, having to sacrifice people to get a to achieve a goal that is you know basically just settling for uh the best case scenario where either in no matter what you do people are going to die awful things are going to happen so you just have to kind of mitigate and it doesn't look good no matter what you do and well stannis uh, you know also is a problem at is problem here because it's, it's kind of clear from a lot of people like Ned should have maybe realized how people are going to see Stannis and how they really don't want him to be king because of how rigid and uh, hard headed he is. You know, even though there's a lot of things to like about Stannis, I'm not sure how good a king he would be. <laughs> he would be better than Cersei and Joffrey and a lot of others, but certainly to someone like Littlefinger, he would be, he would be terrible from Littlefinger's perspective. Not that we, care about Littlefinger's perspective in terms of what we want, but we do care in terms of getting at how he's going to act, how he's going to behave, and what his strategies are going to be. Now, it's another good point here. Uh, Ned, earlier we were thinking about, I think it was Detoura Damiana points out how Ned underestimates Cersei because of misogyny. Well, we all realize that Ned underestimates Cersei, and we're you know kind of getting at why. And he thinks here, Lord Tywin and Sir Jamie were not men to suffer disgrace meekly. They would fight rather than flee. Well, this is exactly what we're talking about. He sits there wondering why Cersei hasn't run away yet. He's thinking, why hasn't she run away? She should have run away by now. But he, at the same time, he's thinking that Tywin and Jamie would not run away. Well, neither would Cersei. He just doesn't seem to get that. So, oops. <laughs> and also interestingly... Uh, Abraham points out that Ned won't conspire with Renly, but is too willing to trust Littlefinger. Too well, not, not that he trusts Littlefinger, but he does trust him to a certain extent. And he becomes dependent on Littlefinger's whispers, Treagle, Tree Girl points out, which is kind of interesting. He becomes, he starts to rely on him. And at one point, he actually physically is, is being helped by Littlefinger, which is symbolic of, of being dependent on Littlefinger. Uh, and that's going to happen with Tyrion and Varys later, too. Tyrion is going to become sort of 
not addicted to, but sort of dependent on viruses whispers because they're just so important. And he, he just, the idea of not having that inside information is, is difficult to think how he would manage being hand without it. Varus knows this, though. Varus is extremely good at making himself useful. That's how he stayed alive for so long, despite being so loathed and so mistrusted. Well, there you go. <clears throat> ah, Nina corrects me. I said that Danny burned her hands on the horse flesh at the end of A Dance of Dragons, but no, apparently it was in the pit. Uh, yeah, okay, so I got that wrong. Either way, the point is that she burned her hands. Thanks for the clarification. Same point. All right. That is it for uh, this Ned chapter. We'll move on here to John 6. The gang swears their night's watch vows, a.k.a. the one where Ghost finds Benjamin's men. John was breaking his fast on apple cakes and blood sausage when Samuel Tarley plopped himself down on the bench. Tarley's pretty good because, you know, when you take the black, you, you know, it's like you're all covered in tar. Yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> sure, I'll, yeah. I'll give you that one. I don't know. Ah. That was weak. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks anyway, though. <laughs> Before we heard the function of the watch, then we saw other parts, the training, the day-to-day living, the people, the different branches, the builders, the stewards, and the rangers, and how they function, how they interact, and all that. In the prologue, we got the true purpose, though. We saw the real enemy. In this chapter, we get the brotherhood, the part that binds so many of these men together with all their different backgrounds and births and stations and how that becomes one. It's like men who lacked purpose before now have it. It's a really powerful thing to unite people from such uh, different stations because in Westeros is so class conscious. So you have, you know, the lowest of the low who are training alongside, you know, highborn people like knights and, and even lords in some cases. Uh, it's the only place in Westeros, where this happens, even though, you know, it's exaggerated that they're not truly equal, especially, you know, under Gior Mormont, that's one of the fair criticisms of him is that just about everyone who's an officer under Gior is noble born. Now, maybe he's just trying to do what he has to do to get the failing watch to get more support. And, and you know, giving honor to noble houses is a good way to get more stuff, you know, fair. Uh, it's, it might be a little disappointing, but it is also fair that he has to do what he has to do. On the other hand, uh, it also just speaks to how things are not always as they seem. Like there's the goal and then there's the reality. The goal is for all these people to be equal. The reality is they're not, but it's closer to equal than it is anywhere else. And so that still matters. Uh, And of course, for a lot of these men, the vows also mean quite a bit less. So some of them, they're like, oh, this is, you know, my life has changed forever. I'm this is who I am now. I swore to the gods. I'm not going to go back against my word to the gods. But, you know, there's people like Chet and others who who feel like they were forced into taking this vow. And then maybe that doesn't mean as much if you're forced. A vow at sword point is less meaningful. And this is kind of, this comes up in the chapter. John, you know, the Mormon says, you know, if you're not going to take the vows, this is your last chance to back out. That's not even true. It's true for someone like John. It's true for Sam. But it's not true for the ones who like Darian and Pip who were sent there because they were sent as criminals. If they were to say, nah, I don't want to take the black after all, they'd, they'd be become a fugitive. It was, their choice was the wall or punishment. So if they change their mind about the wall, they still got to have that punishment. So it isn't really a choice. I mean, nothing's really changed. They still don't want to have their parts cut off or execution to happen. Uh, 
just because they got to swear an oath now. They knew that already. So it's not exactly true that they have this choice. For a while, we have all these parallels between John and Sansa, and we're about to, we're going to show you uh, another really good one here in a minute. But I think uh, it's important to rope Arya into this conversation because in Arya's first chapter, she reflects how life isn't fair to bastards. And and John reminds her of that when she's talking about hating needlework, (laughs) which is fun. But it is John and Sansa, actually, who do the most looking down on people, even as others look down on them. It's just, it's a little hidden in John's case because he's, you know, sent to this awful place and the people he's looking down on are kind of crappy people. But on the other hand, Donald Noy sets him straight and we, and we get the point. We're like, yeah, Donald Noy was right. Sansa and John are doing the same thing. They're looking down on people quite a lot, even though they themselves are not in the same spot. So another thing they have in common here is this tantrum about things not being fair. Of course things aren't fair, especially in Westeros. They're not fair in our world. They're definitely not fair in Westeros. But look how close these, these lines line up. Yeah, first from Sansa 3. Me too? So, tears welled in Sansa's eyes. That's not fair. And, and that then, was the chapter we just dealt with. We didn't read that line, but it just happened. Mm-hmm. And then from Eddard, Eddard 14, sorry. But why? Sansa, your lord father knows best, Septon Mordain said. You are not to question his decisions. It's not fair. And then we have this next chapter here that we're dealing with, and we get this line. I'm a better swordsman and a better rider than any of you, John blazed back. It's not fair. <laughs> okay, John. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you're also incredibly privileged. Yeah. <laughs> the reason you're a better swordsman and better rider is because of that privilege. It's not because you were born more skilled, John. So it's in, for both of them, there's an immediate lesson in perspective, though neither of them really hear it. Darian reminds John that a lie put him at the wall. Darian himself, that is. It doesn't seem to move John. It's Sam's revelation that John is being groomed for command that flips his attitude. Sam, uh, you know, gets him to change his mind. It's not Darian's talk about how unfair life is for so many of them. And to John's credit, though, he does turn about face and says and admits that he was acting the boy. So you got to give John credit for, you know, backing off the ledge and realizing he was being shitty. Now, uh, and of course, there's a bit more meaning to Darian telling John, of all people, that a lie put him at the wall. (laughs) Of course, John is also at the wall because of a lie, which is, yeah, that's funny. (laughs) And Sansa runs off to tell Cersei her father's plans, which is, you know, it's not clear if she realizes the difference that made. But mm, here we have a similar concept. He wanted his heir at his side, don't you see? to watch and listen and learn from all he did. I'll wager that's why Lord Marmont requested you, John. What else could it be? He wants to groom you for command. Yeah, that's sneaky too. George being super sneaky here. Yeah, of course it makes sense that the reveal here is, oh, they're grooming John for command. Of course, he wants to, he could make him, make him be Lord Commander. Comparing John to an heir, though, is a sneaky thing to do. <laughs> His heir at his side. Yeah, listen and learn from all he did. Mm Mm-hmm, that's very good. Gotta love the Night's Watch vow here, too, though. Uh, It's funny to compare the Night's Watch vow giving up, you know, your heir, any kind of claims you have, to have these concepts be paired together so nicely and so sneakily. Now, the wording of the Night's Watch vow has been studied about as much as anything in this fandom. It's made lawyers of us all. (laughs) We're all contract lawyers because of 
the Night's Watch vows. Getting technical with his wording, uh, it does seem relevant, though. I mean, the line, it shall not end until my death, really does prove important in giving John a loophole to leave the wall on the television show. And there's no reason to think it couldn't do the same in the books. Not that it definitely will. We just can't rule it out. It seems like something that could happen. There's a lot of things in the show that happen that we can just rule right out. They won't happen in the books. This one, however, certainly not. Certainly could happen. Now, take note of this wording, which I find very curious. John could sense the vast weight pressing down on him as he waited behind the Lord Steward. The air was colder than a tomb, and more still. He felt a strange relief when they emerged when they re-emerged into the afternoon light on the north side of the wall. Interesting. So that's, as he's crossing under the wall, that's really interesting. The colder than a tomb, well, I mean, given where John's headed, you know, as, as an undead person, that's interesting. But this, the thing that I think is more interesting, perhaps, is that he felt a strange relief when they re-emerged into the afternoon light on the north side of the wall. Is this, uh, there's a couple of things going on here. Maybe there's some symbolism for him dying and being reborn. But... This smells more like the Endgame stuff, where at the end of the TV show, John is happy to be beyond the wall. It's like the place where he truly belongs. Now, I wonder if that's what George is, is alluding to here, with the strange relief that now he's home, now where he's where he belongs, north of the wall in the wild. Uh, maybe that's where he's most comfortable. Maybe George is alluding to that already. The weight, too, is important. The weight pressing down on him. There's maybe some more straightforward symbolism there. The weight of, of leadership being in command of such an important place, such an important job, such a thankless job that the realm is doesn't even realize how important it is. So that could be what is, is being said here with the weight. But also, it's just literally true. I mean, it's 700 feet of ice <laughs> right above them. So it definitely is uh, more than one meeting there. Let's talk about my man, Diwin. The character I want to draw your attention to here, he's the ranger with wooden teeth. He's often, he's kind of stands out a little bit because of the sucking noises he makes. <laughs> Roy Detrice does his voice very, very well. It's very uh, unique. Uh, he really gets the sense of, the, of having the wooden teeth. It's a little gross, actually, but that's, uh, that's kind of the point. As you can see here, he appears early and is still around now. Well, we're, we're pretty sure he's still alive. So that's cool. Another, another ranger that's survived everything to this point. Now, it's the wooden teeth stuff that kind of makes him stand out because of uh, just how noticeable that is. But it's to me, the more important is that he's highly competent. He senses something is wrong in this moment before Ghost shows up carrying that hand. To him, the night smells wrong. And, well, he's right. The night is wrong smelling. And in the next John chapter, there's this line. Dywin, the gnarled old forester who liked to boast that he could smell snow coming on. Well, he does have quite the sense of smell. He can smell something wrong with the night. And in Clash, again, he thinks the cold smells wrong. This dude has a nose you should trust. <laughs> and he thinks Craster has a cold smell to him. Oh, he's right pretty much every time, Right. His skill is such that he's one of Chet's targets. We mentioned Chet, the one who arranges to kill John and, and Sam. And, well, do they actually arrange to kill John? Well, they certainly don't like John. They try to kill, they want to kill Sam and several other people like Mormont to, so that they can escape. And the reason they want to kill Dywin is because they're, uh, they're concerned that his tracking skills are so good that, that, that he would find them. So they need to take out the tracker, the best tracker. 
So that's important. He's the kind of got the reputation of being the the best tracker of the batch. He's brave during the Battle of the Fist of the First Men. He's kind of laughing at one point about, you know, uh, during the fight. So he survives. He's also survived. He also survives the mutiny against Lord Commander Mormont, makes it back to the wall. And then when John sends Alistair Thorne on arranging, it's with Dywin and one other man. Now, Melisandre sees three of those nine rangers dead in a vision. Remember that John sends out three batches of three. But the three dead ones, we've seen already. So for now, it seems like Dywin is still out there and using that sense of smell for good. Hopefully he survives a bit longer, if not even longer. I I like Dywin. But let's talk about the grove. The place where he smells the cold going wrong is at this really cool, creepy grove of nine. Let's quote it. Even in the wolf's wood, you never found more than two or three of the white trees growing together. A grove of nine was unheard of. The forest floor was carpeted with fallen leaves, blood red on top, black rot beneath. The wide, smooth trunks were bone pale, and nine faces stared inward. The dried sap that crusted in the eyes was red and hard as ruby. Bowen Marsh commanded them to leave their horses outside the circle. This is a sacred place. We will not defile it or let the horses defile it. Yeah, right. Don't let the horses <laughs> dump it on there. It's interesting how much like fire and blood symbolism is here. Of course, the icy stuff is more on the surface. You've got the bone pale. You've got just the coldness. But you've got the blood red on top with black rot beneath, which is kind of the targ colors. And you've also got the hard as ruby sap. Uh, rubies, of course, associated with Rhaegar and some other things. Now... As far as the the circle, yeah. So they John points out that even in the wolf's wood, you never find more than two or three together. There's the grove of nine. The, the faces are all are all pointing towards each other. So if you're kind of standing in the center, it's like the old gods are looking right at you. You're kind of in the center of the old gods' eyes. It's uh, very powerful sounding, very uh, mystical, very creepy. Now the the one where the ghost of High Heart lives. Uh, 31 stumps there, but stumps, the operative word is, is had. They had 31 trees there. Ditto, the circle's known to be at Sea Dragon Point. World of Ice and Fire tells us there's werewood circles up there. The Isle of Faces is, is the only one I could think of that's likely to have a larger circle than these nine, unless there's something even farther north, which is, I would suppose that's possible as well. But as far as what we've actually seen and confirmed, this group of nine is by far the largest batch of werewoods in one place. This is also where they're going to find one one later, when uh, after the battle at the wall. Now Stannis, he suggests burning these trees as part of the price of John accepting lordship of Winterfell, and well, John's like, no, <laughs> good, uh, which is I guess is a good thing. I don't know though. You know, we wonder if if Stannis, you know, is is, is brutal as it is to burn the werewoods and destroy the old gods like that you wonder if it's necessary you wonder if it's actually a good thing because you know well, some of that stuff's pretty dark right i mean do you think brand should be king or not i don't know down to that i guess <laughs> like i think brand to be a pretty good king but i don't know for sure yeah I mean, well, that's the difference i think because yeah. the old gods clearly were pushing brand i just i don't know I'm, I'm hoping that there's a lot more to this yeah that's why i just can't be so sure you know like at first i'm like why would stannis want to burn this like, burn, of course you don't burn those werewolves I'm like well 
actually, yeah, no, <laughs> the swear words kind of. Yeah, we've long talked about how creepy the old gods' religion is. There's a reason yeah. people like think Jojen paste could be a thing. Like, yeah, just... it's just like Relor is clearly bad too. So yeah. it's not like, well, are we really trading this for that? You know, yeah, that's part of the problem. And the fact that, uh, and you wonder. So speaking of that, speaking of Relor and sacrifice, was this once a place of sacrifice? Probably. Given that apparently human sacrifice to the old gods was a common thing before, you figure this place of nine trees would get more than its share of than a single tree would, if that's how it works, which I assume it does. So I would think that, yes, this was once a place of sacrifice. It may still be occasionally when people aren't looking, <laughs> when the Night's Watch aren't looking, but it's awfully close to the wall for such things. I think that would be, uh... yeah, anyway. The fact that the whites turn up here, is not insignificant either. They knew someone would be coming, perhaps, right? Maybe. Maybe they were like, well, the, the, the others are like, well, they're going to show up at this grove. Let's leave them a surprise. And if that's the case, then John foreshadows it. He tells us just before they go there, when he tells Sam, yeah, let's go there and do our vows. Then you'll stay and say your words with me? The old gods will be expecting us. He made himself smile. Oh, oh. expecting us. Nice. <laughs> smiling. Too. Yeah, smiling. I don't know about smiling. None of those faces, none of those nine faces is smiling. They're all, yeah, they're not, they're not happy faces. That's, that's always mattered to me a lot that you rarely see a werewood with a happy face. They're I will always say screaming or that crying. Or Aziz painted a werewood tree a couple months ago at Painting with a Twist, and his is quite happy looking. <laughs> he, he made a happy werewood. I am not a good painter. Yeah. <laughs> Neither am I. Well, my colors look pretty good, <laughs> but the actual shapes, not so great. Uh, so, yeah, let's take some, uh, some notes from Joe here. Ned is, John is kind of the odd man out from all these Ned chapters, which is interesting because he's, he's such an important part of, of Ned's character. Even Danny has a political connection to King's Landing in, uh, at this point, given the talk, and she's referred, the Dithraki referred to in some Materians chapters, things like that. So John is kind of the outlier at this point, of course, in a reread, he's not because we know how connected he is to so many of these things. And we're seeing things like Targaryen symbolism in this Grove of Nine, even, which is kind of ice and fire, which is John, right? Uh, and Blood Raven. But to a first time reader, yeah, John does seem even more isolated. But Joe's right. It is, he, he is still more isolated at this point. Uh, he wa- Joe also asked the same question I did about the logistics of people leaving regarding their past crime. Like, Pip and Gren couldn't just say, nah, we don't want to take the vows after all. And, but we don't have to face the punishment we were supposed to face for accepting this in the first place. So you got to wonder about that. And I like John and Sam's back and forth here. Uh, It shows their friendship that that Sam can be the kind of friend that says, hey, John, you got spinach in your teeth. You're, you're being an ass here, man. And that, and that John takes that advice and says, you know what? You're right. I was acting like a boy. I really, I just really appreciate that, that John, you know, acts like a kid and then comes to realize it. And then, cause like, you know what? You're right. I was acting like a kid and that's cool. I like that. That's, you gotta appreciate that. Now, a couple people noticed this one. This is very cool. Both, both, uh, Joe Buckley and, uh, who is it? Um, John O'Donnell from Facebook. And they notice it for different reasons. We have, 
Joe points out that this this hand is delivered by a ghost, and it's a severed hand, and Ned is cut off from his handship very soon here. And in the audio book, it hits even harder, apparently. This is what John O'Donnell points out, because the last chap- last line of the chapter is, that's a hand. And with the book reader, with Roy Dotrice reading the novels, he announces the name at the beginning of each chapter. So the next, so this chapter ends with, that's a hand, Eddard. <laughs> with the next line. So, okay, <laughs> that is pretty cool. That one's George, that one George couldn't have intended for the Roy Dotrice part. It just worked out really well. Uh, and the way he says those chapter names is so severe, Eddard, you know, so it's, that's a hand. So that's really cool. I like that a lot. Very good catch. Um, <clears throat> apparently, Diwin's going to smell the cold coming on at the fist as well. I'm not sure if I mentioned that one, but he's just... Pay attention to Darwin's warnings. We, we've noted here that he's been right every single time. When he smells that cold, it's coming. It is coming. So we mentioned that conundrum with the number of, of graduates that were with John. Um, we mentioned that Jaron was kind of the, the, the actual extra there. Well, he just vanishes. He doesn't appear again. They talk about everybody doing their vows, and he's just gone. <laughs> just he's, he, did, he did run off. He decided not to take his vows. He's our example of someone who decided, actually, I'm not going to take the vows. I'm going to go back to the world and face whatever punishment I was going to face. That's, that's our assumption here. Tree Girl from Flick wonders if this line here is foreshadowing. Outside, John looked up at the wall, shining in the sun, the melting ice creeping down its side in a hundred thin fingers. John's rage was such that he would have smashed it all in an instant and the world be damned. Whoa, yeah, that's interesting. I, that, that's quite um evocative line just for John being mad about being named Stuart. It's very flowery language. And yeah, the, the smashing the wall in anger, mm, melting ice, a hundred thin fingers, that could be foreshadowing. Yeah, I don't think that John is going to be the one to take down the wall, but maybe something he does, uh, he blames himself for allowing it to happen later, maybe. We'll have to wait and see. I think this is a good catch, but we can't exactly see what it's pointing to. We'll have to, we'll have to come back and look at it later. Uh, we have Nina and John Hagee had a great conversation on Facebook talking about, wondering about um, the difference between Ned and Cregan. That's just a nice... Uh, back and forth comparison we've done a lot of throughout this reread is, is considering Cregan's position to Ned. And they both point out together that Ned has more authority, but less power because he's the, you know, he's been named hand by the King, whereas Cregan sort of seized the authority of hand by getting named. And he was only a hand for a day. He was not actually Lord protector of the realm, but he had more power because he had an army right there. He also had more, um, you know, energy for, for making changes. Whereas Ned is kind of, uh, He's less, he's willing to rock the boat, but he's less willing than Cregan. And in regards to our earlier conversation about how people will be remembered, will this be remembered as a second hour of the wolf in Westerosi history? Because Ned was not hand for very long, um, you know, a little longer than Cregan, but in terms of historical terms, short. The, the two hours of the wolf. The two. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I like it. Also, um, there are some people wondering uh, on our social media whether John Aaron is a major reason why Ned valued children so much. Because, of course, it's pointed out that John Aaron talked Robert out of sending assassins after Danny and Viserys so long ago when they were kids. And you wonder if that's also where Ned got those values, because Ned was fostered with John Aaron. Now, of course, Ned's been through so much on his own without John Aaron. That gives him some 
background with kids, but I definitely agree that it's very likely that some of that came from John as well. At least it was enforced by John. It, it was validated by John, encouraged by John. But Robert didn't listen. <laughs> but Ned did. Oh, well. Nina also points out, great catch here, the lies we tell for love that Ned is thinking about and Jamie's loathing comment, the things I do for love. Hmm. Good com- Good point there. That is uh, done for similar reasons, but for, you know, the ethics are very different, but it's, it's for the same bottom line of protecting children or a child. Or no, children. You know, Jamie's trying to protect all three of his kids. John Hagee also says, Chet complains about the fairness in the, song of, in, the, in the Storm of Swords prologue. It isn't fair, he wanted to scream. Snow would ruin everything he'd worked for, all his careful plans. That's, well, maybe it's a little premature to talk about that line, but Snow did ruin everything he worked for in that, in that chapter. Not, not John Snow, but the Snow, because they couldn't find where they left things. They couldn't find the, the food that they had stashed because the snow was, snowfall was so heavy. And then, of course, the others show up, and that's... That's really ruining everything he'd worked for by killing him. Okay. A comment from Brian E. here. Hey, Brian, good to see you. David Peterson, who is the inventor of all the A Song of Ice and Fire languages, other than the little bits George invented for Also going to be at Ice and Fire Con yeah, next year. Folks, Ice and Fire Con's getting David J. Peterson. Come meet the, the language creator in a, in a relatively small group of people. Good time to be able to interact with him. He's really fun to hang out with. He's a really clever intelligent and uh, yeah he's very funny as you will see from this story brian e shared here (laughs) that's right so david peterson in creating the old tongue retroactively made the giant's full name a bit of a joke one means thick weg and dar mean arm and leg so his name means thick arm thick leg (laughs) thick (laughs) thick arm thick leg thick or thick with two c's if you prefer (laughs) which i do (laughs) thick arm thick leg thick that's fun <laughs> That's to <really> say. <laughs> well done. There is a lot of wordplay in A Song of Ice and Fire, but it's not always in the places you think. It's not all from George. Good job. <laughs> Good job, David J. Peterson. He's got the sense of humor that uh, fits in so nicely. All right. Eddard 14. We have this one and one more left. This one is The Gang Usurps Robert's Will, a.k.a. the one where Littlefinger did warn Ned not to trust him, you know. This is also the one where Sansa runs off to tell Cersei what's going on, so we'll break down the impact of that as well. Of course, it's also the one that starts with breakfast and ends with his own dagger held at his throat by Littlefinger with just about all the rest of his guard he hadn't sent away, killed around him. The gray light of dawn was streaming through his window when the thunder of hoofbeats awoke Eddard Stark from his brief, exhausted sleep. Another, Another bit of exhausted sleep. Ned's progress continues to echo the Tower of Joy, Again, it continues. Just it's so much, right? As he faces the king's guard, who are guarding a young king. Again, we are. It's, it's Tower Joy vibes. In this case, the king is the bastard, and the bastard is the king, or would be king, as they say. Comparing John to Joffrey reminds us of John and Arya watching the sparring at Winterfell back in the beginning, when John says bastards aren't allowed to hit princes. <laughs> well, yep. It's funny that we hear that John's real name is Aegon on the TV show, but isn't necessarily the case in the books. He might be, though. It might be Aemon. It might be Jaehaerys. It's hard to say. Calling him King John, it probably isn't going to be quite right, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So again, Ned is suffering from lack of sleep, like I said. It seems like the only extended sleep he's ever had in his entire arc is when he broke his leg 
and he was knocked out by drugs and pain. It's been nonstop work since he woke back up. If you recall, Robert demanded that he get back to work right away. Even though he didn't quite say it like that, that was pretty much the message. Now, Ned wonders why Cersei hasn't left yet. And, well, he should have asked Sansa. Now, I'm not blaming Sansa for what happened. Like I said, I'm going to give a full breakdown. But he, she does know <laughs> indirectly why Cersei hasn't left, in part. When she runs off screaming, it's not fair. Septa Mordain rose, but Ned gestured her back to her seat. Let her go, Septa. I will try to make her understand when we are all safely back in Winterfell. Yeah, so Ned does intend to straighten things out with Sansa, but unfortunately, this is when Sansa runs off to tell Cersei that Ned is planning to leave the city. So, let's break this down. Knowing he's going to leave is helpful to Cersei, but it is not this great pivotable, pivotable? Pivotal betrayal that many in the fandom see it as. Some people look at this as a really bad moment for Sansa. It was not a good moment for Sansa, for sure. It's harmful. But it didn't make the ultimate difference to Ned himself. The one thing it definitely did was ensure that she herself was trapped there. The person, you know, among the people most harmed by it were Sansa, was Sansa herself, although some people were killed by it, and that was the Stark household. She, that's probably the biggest uh, downside here. Downside. It's, I'm, I'm definitely underplaying it. The thing that the, her ratting out her father did most of all here was get the Stark household killed off. Let me be more clear about why. So Ned is going into that throne room, thinking the City Watch is on his side later, in order to make sure the throne passes to Stannis. But Littlefinger has bought them for Cersei, in part because he doesn't want Stannis to be king either, which he flat out tells Ned, but Ned just goes ahead anyway. Sansa didn't have any impact on any of that whatsoever. Ned had already told Cersei and Littlefinger he knows about the incest, and then he's told Littlefinger he intends to crown Stannis. What Cersei didn't know was how Ned would react to Robert's death, because that hadn't happened yet. When Ned told Cersei that, hey, you need to get the heck out of here because I'm going to tell Robert, well, Robert, they thought Robert was, was still alive at that point. So she may have known, Cersei that is, known about the Stannis bit too because Littlefinger may have told her. She possibly didn't expect Ned to break the betrothal to Joffrey, Sansa and Joffrey's betrothal. Because in her mind, remember, this is Cersei's perspective we're thinking about, not our perspective. You never give up a chance to make your daughter queen. After all, that's what her entire life has been. Tywin would never have given that chance up. So she probably isn't as willing to consider that Ned would do this. Remember, we're strongly considering that Ned, that Cersei's uh, uh, attitude towards Ned, Cersei's, the way she sees Ned, the way she perceives him, is someone that's a lot more cynical than he is. She's thinking of him as someone that is wearing this honor and pride as sort of cynically. So... If Littlefinger told Cersei about the Stannis bit, then he might also tell her, meaning Littlefinger, that he's going to try to convince Ned to go along with Joffrey to avoid war. He's like, look, I'll try to talk Ned into going along with his Joffrey bit because neither of us want Stannis. He shouldn't want Stannis either. So maybe Cersei thinks Littlefinger is going to do that. Maybe, think, maybe she thinks he's going to succeed. Now, it's a little confusing because after Ned resigns his hand, Ned was going to take his family and household home. But... That changed because of Robert's death. He had to change his plans because now there's a succession to handle. Before, he was just going to leave and Robert would still be king, and there is no succession. He, in this case, he, uh, after Robert's death, he decides that he wants to send his family and his household home without him until Stannis can take over. So that's why I said Sansa made herself a hostage, because Ned wasn't going to leave anyway. But by her staying... 
she was made a hostage, which was in turn used against Ned. That's kind of what Ned wanted to avoid. He's like, well, if my family's gone, they can't be used against me. Remember that Ned was perfectly willing to go down uh, to die telling the truth. But once Varus pointed out that Sansa would suffer, then Ned was willing to lie. So it's only Sansa's presence that made that possible. Varus convinced him to keep the secret of the Lannister incest because of this. The other huge factor here is that Cersei knows that anyone in Ned's household could know about the incest. She doesn't know that Ned hasn't told people. In her mind, it's entirely possible that Ned's told some people in his household or all of them. And if they leave King's Landing, then that secret spreads all over the realm. So they have to die from Cersei's perspective. They cannot leave the Red Keep with that secret. But wiping them out in, all, in one fell swoop is basically impossible. If she starts to pick off a few of them, then word gets out, like, wait, Cersei's killed a few of our people, or a few of our people have died, what's going on here? But because they're scattered all over the place, they're doing various jobs all over. Ned's got them over here, one person's over here, someone's over here doing this, doing that. But if they're all in one place, if they're all gathered in a few key locations, then you can take them out in one fell swoop, which is exactly what happens. Because Sansa tells Cersei where they're going to be, where they're going to take ship, when they're leaving, all these details that are pivotal in striking with precision. And one of the men killed here is Tomard, a.k.a. Fat Tom. Ned gives this message to Fat Tom, say, hey, you're going to take this message to Stannis and say, and you're going to tell him only. You're not going to tell his captain of guards. You're not going to tell anyone but Stannis. In the show, Ned just gives this message to some dude who runs off, and he, I think he gets there. But here, he doesn't. Fat Tom is killed in the throne room, and Cersei later finds the message on his body and shows it to Sansa as evidence of Ned's treason. So, this is a message. Uh, so, Stannis is going to learn about, you know, Robert's death anyway and the incest he already knew about. But Ned thought he was informing Stannis about the incest. So he thought he was saying, hey, come take the throne. Here's proof of why you have a claim. He didn't know Stannis already knew that. So that message, when Cersei finds it, it's terrifying because it says, whoa, Ned is inviting Stannis to come take the throne, and he's saying, I'll help you do it. And she knows that that means her children will die. And you know, Jamie's, <laughs> Jamie's death and her own death as well. So if you don't believe me, here's good analysis from a great source. The way I see it, it's not a case of all or nothing. No single person is to blame for Ned's downfall. Sansa played a role, certainly, but it would be unfair to put all the blame on her, but it would also be unfair to exonerate her. She was not privy to all of Ned plan Ned's plans regarding Stannis, the gold cloaks, etc. But she knew more than just that her father planned to spirit her and Arya away from King's Landing. She knew when they were to leave, on what ship, how many men would be in their escort, who would have the command, where Arya was that morning, etc. All of which was useful to Cersei in planning and timing her move. Yeah, it's note like what, she, what he says here about Arya and where she was that morning. We know that Arya's training with Syria. We're about to see that. That's the next chapter. Exa that's exactly the point. How did Cersei know that Arya would be there at that time training? Well, because it was part of what Sansa told her. Cersei probably asked Sansa for a lot of additional details, and Sansa didn't realize what she was telling. Now, why do I put such stock in this opinion that Shea just read? 
Well, because it's George R. Martin's. That is his quote. He said that. That's from the story of Sospek Martin back in the early days, even before A Storm of Swords was published. Now, George goes on to say even more about it right here. Ned's talk with Littlefinger was certainly a turning point, though I am not sure I would call it the turning point. There were other crucial decisions that could easily have changed all had they gone differently. You meant you mentioned Ned's refusal of Renly, which was equally critical. And there's Varys to consider, as well as the minor but crucial player everyone forgets, Jano Slint, who might have chosen to just to do his duty instead of selling the gold cloaks to the highest bidder. There you go, straight from the man himself, George laying it down. So there's a lot blame, of what ifs. Blame there. everything on Jano Slint always. <laughs> That's my choice. So there's lots of what ifs there, but George makes it clear that you can't blame just one person, certainly not Sansa. Unless now, it's Jano Slint. Unless it's Jano Slint. Yeah, I, I agree with the shame. Blame, blame Janos. <laughs> now, to confuse the issue further, this is one of the things that get, really gets people. Cersei later tells Tyrion that Sansa's warning was crucial, but she's lying. And how do we know she's lying? Well, she can't tell Tyrion that the, the real reason, which is that Ned knew about the incest. Because, well, then she'd be telling Tyrion about the incest. And she doesn't know if Tyrion knows or not. Not back then, anyway. So, beyond these clarifications, this moment has an even greater impact now that we've seen it on TV. Because, what a lesson for a future queen to have. If she ever realizes it, Sansa will realize or will consider... Uh, or you know, get sad about the fact that she can the way that she controlled this secret. Well, the it, it had huge impact. The manner in which she handled this secret information led to the death of those under Stark protection. That's a rough thing to realize yeah. if you're multiple times. Yeah. So I hope she realizes this mistake someday. Not because it'll make her suffer. I don't want her to suffer, but because it's a valuable lesson for someone in power. The actions of people who possess great power have more consequences than those who do not have great power. It's just like this trickle-down effect. Sometimes it's more than a trickle-down effect. Sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a fist. And consider what we see at the end of season eight, right? Sansa leaking the truth about Jon's parentage. Intentionally, she knows how that's going to go. She knows how that secret's going to spill and the effect it's going to have. So she has learned about it. She uses it to great effect there. Whether you agree with her decision or not, you have to admit she knew what, he was do- what she was doing and uh, it was with a purpose. So basically the point being a secret revealed at a key time, knowing what the impact of that secret will be. In both cases, it leads to quite a bit of upheaval. In both cases, it leads to a change in regime. Uh, In this case, it's a smaller version of that. It helps preserve a regime rather than change it. It helps the Lannisters hold power rather than helping her father uh, give the throne to Stannis. So throughout Ned's arc, we've defended his actions for the most part considering what many consider his mistakes to be not mistakes at all. But there are exceptions. I have certainly not, I would certainly not go as far as to say Ned, Ned did nothing wrong. <laughs> I, I don't go there with Cat. I don't go with Ned. There's nobody who did nothing wrong. Come on, y'all. This is a story about humans. We all make mistakes. Every single one of us, even these characters. Yeah, I think Ned's mistakes are far more egregious than any of Sansa's mistakes because he's a damn adult. Yeah, that's Personally. a yeah, fair point. He's th- triple her age. Yeah. As we said before, Ned could not have known Robert would be dead when he told Cersei his plan. But now that Robert is dead, he's sitting there wondering why she hasn't left. And again, as we've said multiple times from multiple different angles, for multiple different reasons, he's underestimating how dangerous she is. He has no good reason to be so sure of Littlefinger and the City Watch. 
Why is he so confident that they're on his side, especially given how clearly bad Stannis would be for Lord Baelish's ambitions and business interests? The guy who wanted to ban brothels, you really think Littlefinger wants that guy around? Nah. And the fact that Cersei hasn't left is a sign he's not that she's not gonna leave, my dude. It's like, why hasn't he why hasn't she left yet? She's not gonna. He should have realized that she wasn't going to. Another hard truth is that while Ned is absolutely technically correct, the best, the best kind yeah. of, <laughs> you owe me a Coke, <laughs> James, <laughs> that Stannis is the king, technically, Littlefinger is also correct in this. Hear me out. Stannis is no friend of yours, nor of mine. <laughs> Remember how he says that? He's like, Lord Eddard was no friend of me. But <laughs> I, know, I just now thought of that. That's great. <laughs> Even his brothers can scarcely stomach him. The man is iron, hard, and unyielding. He'll give us a new hand and a new council for a certainty. No doubt he'll thank you for handing him the crown, but he won't love you for it, and his assent will mean war. Stannis cannot rest easy on the throne until Cersei and her bastards are dead. Do you think Lord Tywin will sit idly while his daughter's daughter's head is measured for a spike? Casterly Rock will rise, and not alone. Robert found it in him to pardon men who served King Aerys, so long as they did him fealty. Stannis is less forgiving. He will not have forgotten the, st- the siege of Storm's End, and the Lord's Tyrell and Redwine dare not. Every man who fought beneath the dragon banner or rose with Balon Greyjoy will have good cause to fear. Seat Stannis on the Iron Throne, and I promise you, the realm will bleed. So it's an interesting line because I say he's correct, but not right. Difference is an important distinction between saying correct versus right. To me, he's saying he's right means that you agree with the course of action he's suggesting. What I mean is that he's correct that these things will happen. Uh, that doesn't mean it's the right. It doesn't mean it's the right way to go about it. But he is correct that. Cersei and her bastards will be at risk from Stannis, that Lord Tywin will not sit idly by while his daughter's head is measured for a spike. Castle Rock will rise and not alone. That's true. It's true that Stannis is less forgiving. It's true that Stannis will not have forgotten the siege of Storm's End and the Lord Tyrell and Redwine won't forget that either. Every man who fought beneath the dragon banner or rose with Balon Greyjoy will have good cause to fear. Those are all true, except that Littlefinger is exaggerating and it works to great effect because at this point in the story, we don't know Stannis yet. We do, but first-time readers don't, so we know that he's exaggerating. Stannis is not going to, you know, be vindictive towards Balon Greyjoy. He's not going to be vindictive towards the Tyrells and Redwine. That's not how he is. He he accepts people that kneel, even though he wants to get them for it. He lets he, he allows Rattleshirt to kneel. <laughs> so he accepts that. If you kneel to him, he's usually good with it. I mean, he, he probably won't give you a second chance if you rise again. He probably would treat a rebel pretty bad, but he, I don't. he's not going to go after the Redwines or the Tyrells for as long as they accept his rule. So he is exaggerating there, um, but he's not wrong that they will have good cause to fear, that they may, they might be worried that Stannis will come for them, even though I and a lot of the rest of you would probably agree that Stannis wouldn't. It doesn't necessarily mean they won't fear it. Hmm? Important distinction there. Uh, <clears throat> so it's true that Ned's way of, the bottom line that Littlefinger's saying that going with Stannis means war is true. Even if Littlefinger is exaggerating some of the specifics of that war, it does mean war. He then goes on to point out that Joffrey is young enough to be reined in. Like, hey, Joffrey's just a kid. We could, we could teach him. You could, you know, you'll be here. You'll be his, uh, his father figure. 
And more importantly, far more importantly, letting Joffrey take the throne likely means no war because Stannis won't have the power to rise without major help, and he won't have major help if Ned backs off and says that he's back in Joffrey. Stannis is just sitting there seething like, I should be king, but he, ha- he doesn't have the means to do that yet. It's only partly because of Ned's letter and these other things that help him uh, get that whole, whole thing going. So it's a, it's a real conundrum. Again, I'm not siding with Littlefinger here. Uh, just it, it, it's interesting that some of the points he makes are actually somewhat correct and that Ned, but because they're coming from Littlefinger, I think it's part of why Ned rejects them. And it's all just a, it's all just a big cluster. <laughs> so this is, uh, as Joe points out, this is basically the end of Ned's political arc. He's, you know, he walks into the throne room and we know what happens. He thinks he's going to take over and Cersei makes her move and Littlefinger makes his move and that's it. And later Littlefinger, later Ned will say, I'm stupid, I'm blind. And we'll be like, well, some things, yes, but you were still had the right, you know, morals. <laughs> and uh, somehow it's it's kind of interesting too how, again, how he's just, this is the point at which he's leaning on Littlefinger. He walks into the throne room and, and how that just, whoops. The quote is, is, Ned's leg was a blaze of pain by the time he stopped. He kept a hand on Littlefinger's shoulder to help support his weight. The wrong man to have supporting your weight. Really interesting. Um, and, of course, Littlefinger just taunting Ned at the end is just so typical with him. He just he's, he says all sorts of insulting things to Ned all throughout. It kind of culminates here. They won't speak again, certainly. And uh, I, I don't, you know, some people wonder maybe Ned should have taken Renly's offer, but I think that's, you know, short-sighted. It wouldn't have worked. The Gold Cloaks vastly outnumbered anything Renly could have done. Renly would have only added 100, and the Gold Cloaks had 2,000, something like that. And if Ned had gone with Renly, well, he's making an enemy of Stannis and the, the Lannisters, and it's the same, some of the same issues come up. Uh, it still means war, and it's still, especially with, from Tywin's point of view, that's, he's going he's to be the enemy no matter what here, unless Ned goes along with Cersei and Joffrey. That's the only way Tywin doesn't start a war. Which doesn't necessarily make it the right thing, but it is, you know, we're laying all this out. We got to, you know, make that clear. So it's interesting, too, that Joffrey is actually sitting on the throne when all this happens. And uh, if he's sitting there, if he's standing next to the throne instead, well, while Cersei is standing next to him, (laughs) it's all it's all very symbolic. And we have kind of their own version of a paper shield that that she shreds in front of Ned that Barristan is horrified at. It just shows how little power these norms have when someone wants to challenge them, you know, when someone wants to turn to violence. Instead, all these uh, standards and procedures just fall on the by the wayside. Interestingly, uh, uh, Fat Tom tells Ned they were a bit low on men. <laughs> and he's, the, again, he's the one carrying the letter intended for Stannis. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a refrain that Ned has been sending his men all over the place, doing all sorts of various tasks when really he needed them by him. On the other hand... Like I said about Renly, it probably wouldn't have been enough. The entire city watch turning on him. I don't know that a few more men, even 50 more men would have mattered. That's just too many people to be up against. Plus the King's Guard, plus the Hound and some other Lannister guards. Yeah. So Ned was really stuck here. There wasn't really, he was either going to do something dishonorable, something that maybe puts him in danger and his family in danger in the long run, or something that puts his family in danger in the short run. 
But, of course, there was so much bad luck as well. Cersei, things just worked out for Cersei. But they probably won't continue to work out for Cersei in the long run. We'll just have to see. All right. Last chapter for the day, we got Arya 4, the one where the first sword of Bravos doesn't run, a.k.a. the gang escapes the Red Keep. It's also when Arya kills a boy, her first kill, and she's separated from her family. Well, mostly for good, um, because in the books, of course, we haven't gotten back to the point where she is reunited with anybody. It's a pretty safe assumption that it'll happen. But how, when, probably a bit different. Hi, Sirio Pharrell called out, slashing at her head. <laughs> this tragic upheaval facing the stars can be broken down into a bunch of smaller tragedies, and this final scene with Sirio is certainly one of them. It's like a microcosm for Arya. Sirio tells Arya how he became to be First Sword, that the Sea Lord praised his pet cat as special, and everyone would agree with that. But Sirio saw through that and called it ordinary, and that was the truth. It was ordinary. Earlier, Arya failed the lesson of the Sea Lord's cat in seeing Joff as a stag, so it was like the meta version of George R. R. Martin giving us the answer before he gives us the riddle. Arya needed this lesson before being confronted with the question of Joff's looks not matching his parentage, but... Well, now she's armed with that lesson. She seems very good at it from, well, from about this point forward. And the lesson plays out for real, not moments later, when Sirio realizes there is something very suspicious about Lannister men coming to collect Arya instead instead of her father's men. See first. Don't think first. We also know from George R. R. Martin's quote and from our own inferences that Cersei may have known this lesson was taking place precisely when and where, which is why things went along the way they did. So then, you know, she gets to run off and she hides. She gets to go beneath the tunnels and it's a much different reaction this time. This time, the monsters did not frighten her. They seemed almost old friends. Arya held the candle over her head, which with each step she took, the shadows moved against the walls as if they were turning to watch her pass. Dragons, she whispered. She slid needle out from under her cloak. The slender blades seemed very small and the dragons very big. Yet somehow Arya felt better with steel in her hand. Yeah, so before this moment, she thinks whether she could find the room with the monsters again. And that, to me, that's foreshadowing. Not that she just finds it a few minutes later. Not that, not that she's successful later. Of course, that does happen. But in, the, in her first scene down in these tunnels in, in the Red Keep, we, we wondered how, we talked about how much foreshadowing there might be for her coming back to these tunnels with a purpose, uh, you know, as an intruder trying to kill somebody. And so the fact that she's already found her way back, this, this proves that she does know how to get back there and that this time she's not afraid of facing dragons. And, well, if the dragons are in the Red Keep when she gets there, that might be why she's going. So I think this is a really, really big uh, clue for her future. One of the things that we haven't seen and one of the things that wasn't on TV. So it's still kind of a hidden little bit. And we should definitely take note that she thinks of dragons and then immediately thinks of the crypts of Winterfell. This is an anecdote that's... George is so good at making out-of-place anecdotes seem like they're in place, but when we... that they belong. But when we look at it, it's like it kind of feels separate and you, you almost get a sense that George is really trying to tell us something here. Arya was a, so the scene we're, we're getting at here is Arya being a big winner in the seeing with your eyes game, but well before this time. And it's the time when she was completely not fooled by John pretending to be a ghost. Old Nan had told her there were spiders down here and rats as big as dogs. Rob smiled when she said that. 
There are worse things than spiders and rats, he whispered. This is where the dead walk. That was when they heard the sound, low and deep and shivery. Baby Bran had clutched at Arya's hand. Gee, uh, John pretending to be a ghost or ghost down in the crypts, a place you go when you're stabbed by your Night's Watch brothers. I mean, a place you go when you die. (laughs) John becoming ghost when he dies. Hey, (laughs) that's real nice, George. But there's also this Arya clutching, you know, Bran clutching Arya's hand and protecting him. Uh, So I wonder if that's telling us something that she's maybe going to be protecting him from something later. Because, you know, there's going out to kill people who are your enemy and there's going, you know, there's counterintelligence. Arya could be, you know, someone might try to kill King Bran and maybe Arya could, you know, be the the countermeasure against that. Maybe not. How about this? I mean, you can even think about a situation. I mean, obviously there's no Night King, yeah. But the idea that Bran, you know, could be attacked by, you know, figures and stuff like that, and Arya would play a role in actually defending him, much mm. like Theon or Alice Karstark was portrayed as doing mm. in the show. Yeah, if she's wielding Dark Sister at his side, yeah, just cool just, like that. Just killing others and stuff like that. Hell yeah. <laughs> and this wording, though, uh, not only just the ghost and John wording, the fact that the crypts are where the dead walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happened on TV. Ironically, though, it was Sansa who faced that on TV. And in this scene, Sansa's the one who runs away, whereas everyone else stays in the crypt, which is also maybe uh, symbolic of, of Sansa being separated from her family, separated from the crypts, which is, you know, symbolic of the Starks and their resting place in their home. But of course, she does end up coming back to that. But, you know, it's kind of neat that that happens here. So, but of course, like I said, George manages to tie all this together. He has the reader, a first time reader thinking that Arya maybe could find her way back home. We rereaders know that maybe she'll eventually find her way back home, but it's not soon. So this this seems a little sad. Everything would be better when she was home again, safe behind Winterfell's gray granite walls. Her, foot sent, her footsteps sent soft echoes hurrying ahead of her as Arya plunged deeper into the darkness. Arya plunged deeper into the darkness. That's the line there that really matters. She wants to be going home but it's not where she's going. It's basically what this line is all about. It's where she wants to be going versus where she's actually going. And she's got a long way to go before she gets home, a very circuitous route. And will she actually be safe behind Winterfell's gray granite walls when she gets there? Probably not too safe, but she'll be not as worried about being safe after going to Bravos and learning all the things she does. It'll be other people who will be worried about being safe from her. But we got a ways to go before we get to that. A couple of uh, notes here. All, uh, Joe points out that she uses all three of her main mentors throughout this chapter. John with the pointy end talk, walking, not running via Ned. You know, she, she keeps her composure to not uh, draw attention to herself when she's trying to escape from the Red Keep. And, of course, Sirio's sayings. The first sword of Bravos does not run. It's an amazing moment for Sirio. He's honorable and brave and all that. He, it's his best. It's a, it's a it's a glorious death. It's a not glorious, but it's a noble death. And he adds himself to the list of people who Would you are. Call it a beautiful death. It could be a beautiful death. Yeah. <laughs> He's uh, Joe says he adds himself to the list of child saving heroes throughout, and it's Sirio and his teachings have one of the longest legacies of any dead character. Arya never truly leaves Sirio behind. She's quoting him constantly in her mind and her less, his lessons will probably continue to stick with her. Uh, 
well after she's done with the House of Black and White. And we also have uh, this this killing of the stable boy, which is, you know, kind of tragic for a young girl. Tragic for the boy, too, but he was trying to turn her over to the queen, so you got to do what you got to do. But this the, the note that she sees his accusing eyes. And closing eyes and the dragon eyes looking at her and all this stuff is just basically a, that's a recurring theme. And, of course, closing eyes of many colors is a, is a theme that the TV show raises, which is sort of related here. And, uh, but of course, going into the darkness with eyes is, is a, is a symbolic parallel as well, or at least there's some symbolism to it, meaning that you can't see people's accusing eyes when you're in the darkness. And that's kind of, uh, it's part of the point that you can sort of assuage some of your guilt. You don't, you know, you don't feel that you've done something when there's that darkness, but that's not really a good thing, is it? Uh, our flick discussion went interestingly here, uh, that Arya's uncertainty if it was actually Sirio's voice that she was hearing. In other words, she couldn't, there's that moment where she thinks she's hearing Sirio's voice or is she thinking it? And some people wondered if there was a little magic going on there. It's the, the line is quiet as a shadow. Some people think maybe that's, uh, you know, the Blood Raven maybe whispering to her or something going on magic-wise, Bran, you know, from the future. That's a bit of a stretch for me, but I, I like that line of thinking and, and taking note of things like that. Funny too. This is something I never caught until like a couple hours ago as we were getting ready. This thought occurred to me that Ned didn't think too highly of Sirio. He, he, you know, he he thought his reputation as a fighter was good and as a a teacher, but he was kind of down on Sirio after seeing what Arya was doing. Like the way she was training, like chasing cats and standing on one foot. He's he's like, what the hell is going on here? This is not, uh, this is no good. I'm not, maybe I'm not such a fan of Sirio after all. But if Ned saw how Sirio acted when it came down to Marin coming for his daughter, someone willing to die to protect a child, Sirio would instantly be like one of his best friends. Like he would, wouldn't be not best friend, but a man he respected through and through. Because like that's that's what Ned would do. Ned would not turn over the child, and Sirio did what Ned would do. And I think Ned would really respect. It's, it's a shame that Ned never finds out what was done in uh, Arya's name by Arya's dancing master. Danny Buck points out uh, my favorite new Sirio theory, that Sirio is Quaithe. <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. I don't really think Sirio is Quaithe, and neither does Danny. But it's fun to think about. It's kind of neat to think about all the hope that people have had for so long that Sirio is actually alive. You know, I really, really don't think so. But you might see a faceless man take on Sirio's face. That could happen because they can change their faces. It might be a stretch because where would they get his face? But hey, it's why possible. would I'm mean, yeah, it's I guess they could see into her yeah. memory. I don't know. It would be it's weird. Just, it would, it, there's no reason. There is like, a way to explain it, but I don't know. Oh, well, yeah. Up ultimately, <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a way you could explain something like that. But you really got to think about why. Yeah. And Marin just shows up later. Like, yeah. it all's cool, y'all. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. Pantiful V says in reference to killing the stable boy, the fact that. She forgets all her training except sticking with the pointy end. Uh, the fact that in the in the heat of the moment, you know, the, the, the things that matter to her most come back around. It's interesting that that scene kind of feels like it could be foreshadowing for when she gets into a really tight spot later, if she's maybe facing the undead and how fear will affect her. And maybe the same thing, something similar will happen where she just forgets all but these very important core principles or this, this one important lesson. And whether 
she'll still be, you know, a highly trained faceless man in, when things are at their most climactic and scary. Uh, I can see, see that's one of the things we're trying to do here, you know, with, with Game of Thrones resolving the way it did the TV show, we can look at certain things and be like, okay, that's foreshadowing for that. We can, but other things, we see things that look like they might be foreshadowing because of the way they're written, the way they're worded, the fact that it's such a flowery description, like that thing with John looking up at the wall when he's just mad about being named to the stewards. And the, the way that description was just so powerful. It's almost incongruous. When you see that kind of incongruity, 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 it might be a hint that that's foreshadowing for something that we haven't seen yet. Obviously, if we know the event, it's a lot easier to pick out, oh, that foreshadowed that, oh. But here, but we know there's a lot of things foreshadowed that we haven't seen resolved yet because there's something like 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 different plot lines that the show didn't touch or barely touched or touched in a way we know is going to be different in the book. So, uh, but of that first category, things that the show didn't touch at all, those are the ones that we really are in the most of the dark about because... No, uh, we don't have a resolution yet. We know it's probably coming, but we haven't seen the full shape of it. Thus, when George uses very clever language to point with, to something happening, well, we haven't seen that the other end of that clever language connecting it back to chapter three. You know, oh, George used the same language he used in Aria 2. Well, we haven't seen that language yet. So, well, we'll see. All right, folks, that is all for today. Thank you very much for coming. If you came live to join us and ask questions, we particularly appreciate that. But we also appreciate all the other forms of support. Like and and uh, subscribe. Please tell your friends. A lot of people are rereading at a different pace. If you know someone who's getting ready to start rereading, send them our way. Recommend History of Westeros. Recommend one of the other uh, you know reread podcasts if you feel like it as well. People, uh, everyone, you know, some people want to listen to more than one reread pod. There's lots of different great takes out there besides ours. Certainly recommend uh, seeing what else is out there. We've given some recommendations in the past. We will continue to do that. So, uh, yeah, thanks again to all our patrons. There's so many of y'all who have been making this possible, and we appreciate it so much. And also thanks to Shea, as always, wearing multiple hats, and without actually wearing a hat today. You're not wearing a hat, but figuratively, you're wearing multiple hats. I should be wearing multiple hats, actually, during our streams. I'm the one who likes to wear a Kraken hat, but you're the one who's always got lots of arms doing so many things at once, so... (laughs) (laughs) Also, thanks to Michael Klarfeld, whose known world map was just finished. It's, It'll uh, be launched publicly, uh, properly, on August 12th. It's basically... His, Two days later, we'll meet him. Yeah. It's his Essos and uh, Westeros maps combined, basically, kind of in the style of this Essos map, this coloring. Uh, if you're watching yeah. on video, you can see it. Yeah, if, you, versus, if you're not, you've probably yeah. seen it before. Yeah, We've shown it as the Essos darker coloring versus the lighter coloring of the Westeros map, for yeah. example. So that's something to really look forward to. Also, thanks to Kevin McLeod via Michael for finding us the music that we use for the Valoritas intro. Thanks to our Benjineer for doing our editing. Thanks to our History of Westeros mods for posting the chapters on Facebook and making sure discussions are great and clean. Also, thanks to Nina for being such a big participant in those discussions, as well as for helping us out with the timestamps. If you haven't noticed, we've been putting timestamps in most of the videos and the podcast to help y'all find specific chapters if you don't want to you know if you want to go back and just check out one chapter analysis rather than the whole episode that's uh, a great way to do that and of course uh remember we are back next week don't forget we'll be back eight on eight eleven. but after that we will be off for three weeks so good time to catch up if you haven't 
And if not, well, we've got lots of extra material that you'll be seeing in between, like I said, from the conventions and some other stuff we have. Lots of material that we'll be filling in those gaps with. So we'll close off by telling y'all what's next up. Sansa 4, the gang gaslights Sansa about her father, a.k.a. the one where they get Sansa to write letters because she's a traitor. John 7, the one where John saves Mormont, a.k.a. the gang fights dead rangers. I should have just said the gang fights whites. That sounds... Yeah. Well, they all they fight whites a lot of times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, other times. Bran 6, the one where Great John drops two digits, a.k.a. the gang calls the banners. Daenerys 6, the one with the poison wine cellar, a.k.a. The Call promises to lead the gang to Westeros. <laughs> Catelyn 8. That's one of my favorite titles. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Call 8. Or call 8. Catelyn 8, or rather. <laughs> the gang marches with the Northern Host, a.k.a. the one where Cat says you win or we die. I didn't notice that, that she basically says the same thing Cersei says mm-hmm. to, to Rob. It's pretty neat. Tyrion 7. Yeah. Tyrion 7. The one where the clans meet the Lannisters, a.k.a. the gang meets Tywin. Sansa 5, a.k.a. the one where the Lannisters take a, take over or the gang fires Ser Barristan. Eddard 15, the one where Varys convinces Ned to admit treason, a.k.a. the gang drinks wine in the Black Cells. Now, you may have noticed there was eight chapters there, as I said at the beginning, in order to have a nice eight in order to continue with our pattern of seven, we have to do eight once uh, because there's an uneven number of chapters left. So that'll be next week. Good way to kick off the extra long wait by having one extra chapter in there to fill the space. But like I also said, that space will be filled quite nicely by our con panels and other things. So the next month, even though we'll have less Valar Ruidus, we'll still be quite full of History of Westeros material. So until next time, you know what to do, y'all. Valar Ruidus. <laughs> <laughs>